Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. This is Kendra, and today we're interviewing Kim, and she and I met on Facebook. It's been about a year or so ago, probably more than that, and I'm just going to let her go ahead and get started. If you want to start out with giving us a little bit of background about yourself, and uh, we'll just let you tell your story. Thanks, Kendra, and and thanks for having me. Um, Like you said, my name is Kim. (laughs) I'm 64. I've been married for 42 years, and I birthed four children, and we had one bonus daughter who came to live with us when she was 15. Um, I grew up as a military brat, so every two years, my family moved. Um, When I got married, we moved to Texas a couple years after we got married, and we stayed and lived there for 35 years, and I now reside with my husband in Salt Lake City. And we live three blocks from two of our four grandchildren and get to watch them walk to school every day in front of our house and walk home. So I miss Texas terribly, but I I wouldn't miss this for anything to watch them grow up. So it's, it's, it's been an adventure. Um, So as I mentioned, I was, I was raised as a military. My dad was in the Navy and he was a raging alcoholic. Mm. And um, my mother was the typical enabler mm-hmm. and lived with the strict belief that what happens in the family stays in the family. So, you know, there, there, there was no talking about it. And, and if you were caught talking about it, you were in trouble. Um, my mom had a, a great backhand and we never knew when it was going to hit us. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, sometimes we could be the rudest, most obnoxious children and nothing would happen. And the next time we would think we were doing just fine playing a game and, you know, we'd get backhanded by her for, <laughs> we, we never knew when to expect it. Wow. Um, my dad, on the other hand, was, um, I just don't ever remember him as a, as a little girl being happy, mm-hmm. being loving being, being a dad. Um, and I, I, you know, when you're that age, I don't remember a lot of my childhood, but I, but I believe when you're that age, 
you have certain expectations yeah. of parents, even if you don't know, but you, you know, you expect to be loved. And I, I never, I never felt that from him. He, he would blow up on a dime and I have two older sisters. We are all the three of us, 18 months apart. And then I have a brother um, who's six years younger than me because they wanted to have a boy. So they tried again. And then after they joined the church, they had three more kids. Um, so those, those kids, I was a lot older then. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I can remember times in my childhood where my dad would throw the furniture across the room, um, throw dishes. I remember one time my mom bought a brand new set of dishes and we had a um, service road that ran behind our house and he took them and threw them like frisbees one by one out onto the service road because he was mad she bought them. And um, my my middle sister, um, I would say probably got the brunt of his abuse. We were beat with belts, um, you know, and spanked a lot. But she, I think, got the brunt of it. She she was always the one getting beaten for some reason or another. Um, We lived in a farmhouse in Kansas one time when I, I don't know how old I was. But we had a bunch of feral cats, and we, us girls, loved these feral cats, and we'd play with them. They weren't allowed in the house, but we'd play with them in the yard and run with them, and we had a barn we'd play with them in. And one of them got in the house, and my dad picked it up to throw it outside, and it scratched him, and he picked it up by the tail and beat it with a two-by-four in front of us girls, Um, thinking that that was just okay. You know, there there wasn't a thought about that. Um, he was always drunk. <laughs> One time he came home and I had my radio, just a little radio by my bed, listening to it to fall asleep. And he didn't like that. So he just came and stomped it to pieces. And <laughs> so, so I couldn't have the radio. I, I, you know, it was just all sorts of stuff like this. I, like I said, I don't remember a lot, but when I close my eyes and look back into my childhood, that's what I see. I see violence. Mm-hmm. And I can remember um, doing a program and doing an exercise like that because I don't, I don't remember what Christmas was like. I don't remember my birthdays. Yeah. Um, I just remember so little um, that when I closed my eyes and looked through the, the window of our home, that's what I saw. And I called my oldest sister and asked her how accurate that was. And she said, yeah, that's pretty much the way it was. Mm. So I I was grateful she validated that for me, um, but she didn't consider it abuse. Um, So, and she didn't understand why I even wanted to dredge it up or, or talk about it, you know? Um, So, so it was just, it was just that same story. What's, what happens in the family stays in the family. Mm -hmm. And, and to a big degree, don't even talk about it with your family. Um, when I was in the fifth, fifth grade, the middle of my fifth and sixth grades, we moved from Kansas to Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. And I loved Seattle. I had, um, I, we lived a few blocks from a big lake 
And I would walk down to that lake when we first moved there and just sit there. And I got asked to join a swim team. And I joined this swim team and it was, it was my escape. I got out of the house every day in the morning to go swim in the swim team. And in the summertime, I would just stay at the lake all day. So uh, I, I felt like, you know, that was a safety place for me, you know, to, to be away and not, um, and, and my very first encounter with the divine or the spiritual I, I really I, I was 12 I didn't know what to call it but I was out in the middle of the lake I had finally built up enough stamina to swim from one side of the lake to the other and I was just floating in the middle of the lake and I Seattle is so beautiful and the trees everywhere and they're so green and lush and so big and the blue sky and I was just floating on my back looking at all this and the words came into my head were, um, this is for you anytime you need it. And I knew, I knew that thought didn't come from me, but I didn't know where it come from, but it was, it was just that moment. Ah, this this is for me anytime I want it, (laughs) you know, um, I can reflect back on that now and understand that that was a peaceful time for me. Mm -hmm. You know, the violence was still going on in my home, but I had an escape route and it was a good escape route. And it taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was, it was, it was peace for me. Um, well, while we lived there in Seattle, my um, mom and dad joined the Mormon church. Well, we all joined the Mormon church. My brother wasn't old enough to be baptized, but we, we all were, he quit drinking Um but the verbal, emotional, and the spiritual abuse intensified. Hmm. Um, I think he was described to me once um, in, in a class as a dry drunk. He still had all the behaviors of an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he just wasn't drinking. Um, so in, in, my, in my viewpoint and from my, he still... At first, it was it was the alcohol that he loved, and not his family. And now it was the church. Mm-hmm. So I still didn't feel like I had a dad, yeah. because the church was everything, and they they did everything. Um, so I, I was baptized in the church, but I, I was twelve. I didn't know nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just went along with my family, and and the missionaries were cute, and you know, so <laughs> it, it wasn't anything about a burning testimony or anything spiritual for me it was just you know i i was going along with my family like kids do um in the seventh grade we moved from seattle to an island in the puget sound called Whidbey island and it was a small little navy town um i didn't swim on a swim team there i didn't swim as much but i loved this island and part of the reason i loved it is it was a small little navy town Mm -hmm. so all of the kids had the same background of having been moved their whole lives so there wasn't there wasn't a lot of history with kids yeah and so we it was easy to become friends because just because i I didn't know you i'm just meeting you you know Mm -hmm. um we the history was we moved we were going to move in a couple years so you're going to be my friend now but in a couple years i won't ever know you again and Um, we had that in common, and we also had a, a Navy bus that would, a shuttle that would go through town and take you anywhere you wanted to go. Mm. So we could go to the movies, we could go to the beach, we could, you know, go play, we could go bowling, we, anything we wanted to do, we had access to 
um, for free. And all the other kids were Navy brats too. So all my friends were, were involved in that. So I, I loved it there. I had a lot of freedom there too. Um, um, so then in the, in the, at the end of my ninth grade year, we moved from um, Whidbey Island to Ashland, Kentucky. Mm. And I was pretty sure my life was going to be over. Mm. <laughs> no, no beach, no mountains, you know, people with funny accents, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and hillbillies and, you know, all the things that a 13, 14 year old conjures up in their head about the South. <laughs> um, we, we moved in and um, I was now living in a community where all of the kids had lived there their whole lives and had known each other from kindergarten. Mm. And that was really hard to infiltrate. I had no history with, with anyone. Mm. And so it, it, the high school was really hard for me. It was hard to make friends um, because of that reason. And, and I was so jealous of, of them talking about, Oh, remember in grade school or remember this teacher, you know, cause I didn't have that. And I, I just, it always sounded so safe and so secure mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I wanted it. Yeah. Um, I, I did live next door to a girl who was um, two years older than me and um, was in the midst of trauma. Her mother had just passed away. She was 16. Just before her 16th birthday, her brother had committed suicide and her other brother had moved away. So it was her and her alcoholic father. And so her and I became the best of friends. Um, so, so I had, I had that support. I, she knew my history. I knew hers because mm -hmm. my parents, I know they didn't, they didn't treat her well. I'm, I'm pretty sure they didn't like her because they were pretty sure I was told them all the family secrets. Mm -hmm. um, so um, that, but, but that did, that was a huge, she got me through high school. She taught me how to be a friend. Yeah. Um, I graduated at 17 and I moved from Salt Lake, from Kentucky to Salt Lake City to live with my sister for the summer. And then I made a beeline up to Ritz College. <laughs> um, I was at Ritz. Uh, before I left, I got my patriarchal blessing. Mm -hmm. And in that blessing, I was told that I needed to prepare myself because women were going to come to me and for advice and for help. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was 16. I had no idea what that meant. And, and I kind of went, hmm. <laughs> hmm. And, you know, just kind of forgot about it. Yeah. You know, um, I, I remember that part of it specifically because I thought that was interesting. It wasn't just generic. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't astute enough to figure out what that meant or, or even care or, you know, um, or even try to learn what that meant. So, um, so I kind of went on my way, but um my first semester at Ricks, I had I had two great roommates who came from my history. And the three of us kind of banded together and, and uh, got in trouble and, you know, smoked pot and did the things you don't do at Ricks. And, um, 
One of them I just got reacquainted with here in Salt Lake through Waka. Um, anyway, um, I, her and I actually went out for a weekend to Salt Lake and um, had a one night. I had a one night stand with some guy. His name was John, mm-hmm. and I got pregnant. Oh. And I got kicked out. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I had to make up a story to my parents because I, I I couldn't dare tell them I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And um and and I went home. And at the time, they were now living in Leavenworth, Kansas. And um, my mom figured it out about four and a half, five months when she said, oh, you look like you're gaining a little weight there. And she tapped my belly and my belly wasn't soft. (laughs) Uh, And she was mortified Mm. and called her, called my dad. And um, they started planning out right away what was going to happen. And... um, Every time anybody would come over, they'd hide me in the bedroom. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't already ashamed of myself and already, <laughs> you know, hating myself. And then to have that, to know that they hated me too yeah. or were ashamed of me, you know, that I had to go to the bedroom every time anybody knocked on the door. Mm-hmm. Kim, quick, get in your bedroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so... I went to see the bishop and he told me that the only way I could be forgiven was to give the baby to a worthy family because Mm -hmm. I wasn't. Mm. And my dad told me that no man would ever love me if I kept my baby because that baby would be proof that I was used. Mm. Chewed gum. Yeah. Chewed gum. And my mom pretty much said nothing. She just sat there and listened to these two men tell me. They they found a, a home for me to go live in, in, in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And I got on a bus by myself and went to St. Louis. And the family picked me up. They were, they were very nice, very gracious, mm-hmm. very, very extremely wealthy Mormon family. Um, and they were very kind to me, um, but no one ever, ever asked me except my friend in high school. Her name was Kevin, my best friend, never asked me what I wanted. Mm, Right. And, um, so I'm in St. Louis all alone, scared to death. And I went to church with them every Sunday. And the bishop there was a very, very sincerely kind man. Very kind to me. Mm-hmm. And would 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 engage in conversations with me and and just made me feel like I wasn't, you know, chewed gum, a piece of shit, you know. Yeah, um yeah. he he was very um he just was very kind. Um and one day I was in his office with him and he asked me to to tell him pretty much the story or, you know, if I'm about the father, if I had told the father. And I said, no, it was a one night stand. I barely remember his name. And the only reason I'm keeping track of his name is because I have to. <laughs> if ever 
if ever this child comes looking, she needs to know who her biological parents are. So I'm hanging on to this name. Mm -hmm. I've never seen him again. I've never talked to him again. He has no clue that I got pregnant that night. And so I gave the bishop this name. And the next time I went to his office, we called him. Oh. Because this bishop asked me if I was comfortable with my decision. Mm. And I know it was because he could see I wasn't. Yeah. And so when we talked about that, he said, well, let, let's see. He, he I, I, for the first time, had like this much tiny little bit of hope that maybe I wouldn't have to go through with this. Yeah. And so here I am in his office and he's got this guy on the phone. And, you know, he tells, he, he doesn't even remember my name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he says, well, you know, you met at this place and you stayed overnight at this place and blah, blah. He gave him all the details and, and he said, and she's, she's pregnant with your baby. So do you want to take responsibility for this? Mm-hmm. And the first thing out of his mouth was, how does she know it's mine? Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know? yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I'm embarrassed even further. And this guy is just talking like it's, he, he is being my father. Mm-hmm. You know, he is acting like my dad who is going to, he's going to do right, right. you know. Yeah. And yeah. and I'm just so enamored with this that, you know, my own dad couldn't treat me like this and here this stranger can, yeah. you know, that I'm just, just kind of listening to this with a glimmer of hope because I would have married him. Yeah. If it meant keeping the baby, I, I would have married him. Even if I knew it wasn't going to work out, mm-hmm. I, I would have done it. And so, of course, it didn't work. Of course, it didn't work out. He, after he hung up, he said, you don't want to marry that guy anyway. So yeah. he, he wouldn't be good to you. And so um, he asked me um, at that time if my dad gave me a blessing before I left home. And I said, no, <laughs> They, they were so embarrassed by me that they, they were just really happy to ship me off as soon as they could so no one could find out. Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, I, I would be honored if you would allow me to give you a father's blessing. Aww. And I, I didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, um, I, I thought it was just really kind and generous of him to offer. Yeah. So he gave me this blessing and... I remember at the time, I didn't remember for a lot of years, but I remember at the time, one of the things he said was, someday you will meet a man who will love you so much. He will love the way you hold your spoon when you eat your bowl of cereal for breakfast in the morning. And I remember thinking, that's the corniest thing I've ever heard. Right. (laughs) And at the same time thinking, my own father told me that no man would love me in here. Mm-hmm. This man who is speaking for God in, in all of my understanding and telling me that someday a man would love me so much that it wouldn't matter. Right. Um, but I'm not, uh, you know, if I had been astute enough or mature enough or anything enough back then to say, see, there's my answer. I'm not doing this. <laughs> But yeah. I didn't, you know, I, I believed the lies mm-hmm. instead of the truth. And I went through with it. And um, I had a 10 pound, four ounce baby girl. Yeah. 
that I labored all day long in the hospital all by myself. Um, they hooked me up to every machine and monitor they possibly could and closed the door and left me there until it was time that they could see on the monitor that, you know, labor was, they came in and checked to see how far dilated I was. They whisked me off to have the baby. I, I hadn't had an epidural, so I wasn't feeling anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to see her. I didn't get to hold her. Yeah. <laughs> they they was her away like I was just trash and wasn't even worthy to see her. The only reason I knew she was 10 pounds and that she was a girl is they took her and then the nurses took her to clean her off or whatever and weigh her. And, and I heard a nurse say, Oh my God, she's 10 pounds, four ounces. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew it was a she and I knew how much she weighed. That's all. That's all I had. Hmm. And that's what I held on to that, you know, yeah. that's all I had. Um, so in, in this arena, there is a lack of knowledge about grief. And there also is a lack of permission to even be able to grieve. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a right to grieve. You know, I got, I got myself into this mess, you know, so I, I had the baby. I was picked up. Um, I think just my dad drove to St. Louis to came and get me, drove us back to Kansas City, and life went on as if nothing happened. Mm -hmm. my, my brothers and sisters didn't know. No, nobody was told. And um, I, um, she was born in June. Mm -hmm. on my parents' wedding anniversary. Mm -hmm. And my mother in April had a baby boy. So I went home to a baby in the house. Oh, jeez. Who my mother just thought that I should take care of. Mm. So um, that was... <laughs> That was beyond traumatic. I, I, you know, I, I didn't want to have anything to do with this baby, and I did. It was my brother, and it was a baby, and mm -hmm. it was so many mixed emotions. Um, um, my parents then moved to northern Minnesota, and I moved to St. Paul, and uh, had a girlfriend that I met at a young adult thing, and um, I had made a plan to end my life because I just couldn't see how I, I could get past this nightmare. It, it, it just was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. The whole, whole thing was just a nightmare. And um, I didn't go through with it um, because I was too afraid I, I, I wouldn't kill myself. I would wake up um, paralyzed or, you know, mm -hmm. that I would just wake up, you know. Yeah. And that I wouldn't be dead. So so I couldn't go through with it. I continued to, you know, live my life in trauma. Um, and, and every guy I went out with, I had sex with. I didn't worry if I was going to get pregnant again or not. We yeah. didn't, there, was, there wasn't practicing safe sex back then. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know how I didn't, but somehow I didn't get pregnant again. Um, I met... Carl, my husband, when I was 19, 
And and we he was the first guy I had that didn't want something from me that I met. We were just friends. And he never tried to hold my hand or even to kiss me. We we went out a lot. He came over and hung out a lot. And I I assumed that I just wasn't pretty enough, that he just wasn't attracted to me. So that's <laughs> that's why um when he was, um, he, and he had just joined the church. He was just a brand new member. Mm-hmm. He moved away for a couple of years. Um, we stayed in contact a little bit. Um, well, not, that's not true. We stayed in contact a lot because that's when I fell in love with him over the phone. Yeah. He, mo- he moved to Seattle. Um, he had lived in Minnesota his whole entire life. His dad died when he was real little and his he needed to get out of his mother and his sisters <laughs> need to get away from girls is what he said yeah and I always talked about how much I love Seattle so um he moved to Seattle and uh, we got to know each other over the phone and that's when I fell in love with him over the phone and when he came back um and we started seeing each other our first kiss it it, it was done I, I knew he was the one I was going to marry and um and I, who I wanted to marry. And all of the wake behind me of men mm-hmm. was really weighing heavily on me. Because um, I just wanted to be with him. I wanted him to be my one and only. <laughs> yeah. And um, anyway, so he, he asked me to marry him. We got married on my tw- the day before my 23rd birthday. I wanted to always get married on my birthday, but it was Sunday that year. You don't get married on Sunday. Right. And so I wasn't about to wait another year. So, mm-hmm. so we got married the day before my birthday. And when um, when he asked me to marry him, my parents lived in Southern Illinois now. I'm still in, in St. Paul. And so he calls my parents and he's, he's not asking for their blessing. He's He's just calling them with information. He's never met them. He's never seen them. Um, and it, in my world at that time, you know, I had the greatest parents. You know, they raised me in the church. They're good church members. All of this nonsense is not part of our vocabulary, mm-hmm. except that I tell him I had a baby and I had I placed her for adoption. Yeah. Um, and I had to tell him that so he'd know he wa- I wasn't a virgin. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, and, you know, I just had to tell him that. You just can't, I just never felt like he could go into a relationship with that as a secret. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, so I, I told him and um, he called my parents and he said to my dad, I, I've asked your daughter Kim to marry me. And she said, yes. And I'm I'm not calling for your blessing or your permission. I'm just calling to tell you that I'm going to marry your daughter. Yeah. And I was so impressed that he didn't think he needed a blessing from him because yeah. he didn't. And in, in my in my eyes, he didn't. And mm-hmm. even though he didn't know anything about him. Um, so my mom got on the phone and the only thing she said to me was, does he know about you? Mm. so so that you know just took me right right out of the game um and 
you, you know, he, 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 I don't remember what he said when I told him, I remember how I felt and he didn't make me feel ashamed or dirty or, you know, I, I don't know if he was sad or I, I don't know. I just know I felt good when I told him it didn't feel awful. Like mm -hmm. I thought it would. Yeah. Um, so we got married. My parents, my family didn't even come to the wedding. <laughs> mm. I wasn't getting married in the temple. I wasn't where, marrying a worthy temple mem member, although mm. he was. He had just been baptized maybe for a year, and, you know, he, he wasn't raised in this. He didn't, so he never got, he was never ordained to the priesthood. He, mm. he told them, I can't do that until I'm ready. Okay. So, um. Um, so, so he wasn't ready. So we didn't get married in the temple because he didn't hold the priesthood. Mm -hmm. You think I cared? No, no. <laughs> I didn't. But my parents did. So, so my family didn't come. Um, I didn't, I didn't learn till years later how much that hurt me. But you know, I, I, at the time I was okay with it. I was happy I was getting married. Yeah. Um, when, after we got married, his uncle, he's Carl's first-generation German, and so a lot of his aunts and uncles and family still lives in Germany, and his uncle in Germany offered him a job. Um, he owned a pneumatics tool manufacturing company, and he offered Carl to come and learn the business and then start it here in the United States. So we went to um, Germany for several months and lived there while he learned that, and I didn't speak the language. And it's hard to go around town when you don't speak the language. Right, yeah. So I had a lot of alone time, and I used that time to reflect on my life and realizing it, it was kind of shitty. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I spent a lot of time on my knees repenting because I wanted the memories of other men erased out of my head. Yeah. When I lay down with Carl, I wanted him to be the only one in my mind or in my memory. So I, I, I decided I could work hard on that and I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we came back from um, Germany and we moved to Chicago. Carl and I had our first child. I had two really good friends there that we met at church. They were chiropractic students and Sharon and Leanne and I became best friends and hung out all the time together um Sharon had had two children Leanne was pregnant with her first um just right after well our first children are eight months apart so she got pregnant a little later later on after me but um I had I had Elliot Carl suggested we have our baby at home mm -hmm. and so the more I read into it the more um it felt like what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. So we planned a home birth, and it it was it was kind of the start, maybe, of healing my heart a little bit because I didn't realize it at the time until after she was born. Nobody got to touch her but me. Mm -hmm. Nobody got to hold her. Nobody. Mm -hmm. She does. She wasn't getting weighed until I said she got weighed. You know, she 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 was in my arms for a long time at first and, and, and I had a really quick labor. <laughs> yeah. Which I didn't I wasn't expecting. Uh -huh. 
So I would, at six o'clock in the morning when I woke up in labor, um, I had been in labor all night and just didn't tell him. Yeah. So he called the, the midwife at six and, and she was two hours away. Mm. So she told me, she said, call me early because, you know, I got to, I got to make the drive. And so right. she was born at eight in the morning. Oh, wow. So the midwife didn't get there. So I had Sharon and I had Carl. And Carl's mother was there, but she was pretty hysterical, wanted to call the fire department and, you know, mm-hmm. so Carl sent, kept her in the kitchen boiling water and, <laughs> and boiling, <laughs> boiling, boiling shoestrings and stuff. Right. Just to, just to keep her out of the room. You know, we didn't need that, but um, just to keep her out of the room. And yeah. there was, there was at one point that um, I had a really hard contraction and this man just picked me up and held me in his arms. And and breathed with me through it. And then I thought, wow, this was how she she was conceived, and this is how we're bringing into the world. And yeah. what better way to do it, right? You know, together like this. I was so I was so in awe of the whole process, and um, at the at the same time, sad that it didn't happen that way the first time. But it was really healing for me that. Um, my my body could do this. Mm-hmm. So um, we lived in Chicago for a couple of years, and um, when Ellie was about two and a half, we moved to Texas. And I made a rule that once the kids started school, we were never going to move. Yeah. <laughs> so we stayed in Texas for thirty five years because we weren't going to move. I was not going to do to my kids what was done. Um. Scott was born when Ellie was five. We were all in, in the church, you you know, we did all the church stuff, all the leadership positions. Um, And at the same time, there was a regular parade of women who would come to my house. My husband called it a revolving door to tell me their stories. And I didn't know why. I never told them mine. Mm Um, but it, it happened more times than I can count. Yeah. And, um, you know, what, what do you do? It's not, it's not like you can say, don't come. Although I kept telling God, stop sending women here. You, you've got the wrong girl. I am not the person that, that can talk to them about this. I don't know anything about it. I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to hear these stories. Mm -hmm. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but it didn't stop. Um, Carl and I had no extended family in Texas, so we hung on tight to each other. And that, that was really a good thing for us, that, that we had to rely on each other that way. Um, we made friends with one family in our ward, and we became completely enmeshed with them, and they were our family. Our, our youngest child, Nelson, he was born. They're, they're five years apart, so Ellie was 10, Scott was five, and Nelson was being born, and he was born in their home in their hot tub. Oh, wow. Was that planned? Uh-huh. Yeah? Uh-huh. A water birth? Yeah. And they lived right down the street from us, so oh. it was easy. Um, so um, I served as Relief Society president for several years, and uh, 
the trauma at church started happening in, in 1999. Mm-hmm. So um, we had annual um, New Year's Eve parties at our house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was 1999, the big New Year's Eve party. So all, and we invited everyone. I, I, I wasn't into excluding people, you know, and, or having, you know, oh, this group of people or that. So everybody was invited. So we had this huge party at our house and, um, we had a pool and a hot tub in our backyard mm-hmm. and we heated up the hot tub for the kids. And what we took all their furniture out of the house and want the dining room was a pool table. The, the living room was a ping pong table the kids' bedroom had all the Nintendo games. Yeah. The family room had um, all the card games and board games, and the kitchen just was stocked with food, right? Mm-hmm. And so this party is going on. And I noticed that this little girl, she's five. She is the sister of my son's best friend. Um, and she's crying. And she's crying because she doesn't have a swimsuit to go in the pool. Oh. And so I asked her mom if I could take her to... Nelson's bedroom and find something appropriate to, for her to wear in the mm-hmm. pool and and uh, she says yes and I take her back and I pull out a t-shirt and a pair of boxers of Nelson and I ask her if this is okay and she says yes and I said do you want me to help you get dressed or do you want me to just leave you to dress by yourself and she said no I need help and so I'm helping her get dressed and as I watch her take off her panties I look at her panties and I see um, a thick yellow discharge in them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, hmm, if I remember correctly from seventh grade health class, that happens to girls just before they start their period or if they're sexually active. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, she's five. So neither one of those could be happening. So I must be wrong about my my health. Yeah. <laughs> And so um, I help her put her shirt on and then she stands in between my legs and I put my arms around her to step into the the shorts. And when my arms are around her, I can feel, it's like electricity going through my body. I can feel her pain from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. And I am just taken aback. I've never experienced anything quite like this. Yeah. And as intense as it is. And I remember immediately thinking, pull yourself together, Kim. Don't let her see you, you know, like this. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to scoop her up and tell her that I'd never let anybody help her hurt her again. Right. But, you know, I couldn't do that. <laughs> and so I just took a breath and, and finished dressing her and, and marched her out to the, to the hot tub and just sat and watched her and wondered if I should tell her mom mm-hmm. and, and wondered why I had those feelings and not her mom. And, you know, was I crazy? What was happening? I just, I had no frame of reference to really, but I knew what I, I knew it. I knew it. There, there wasn't any, there wasn't anything you could have told me that I would have said, no, this is what's happening to her. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm telling you, this is what's happening to her. Yeah. And um, finally, the party was over at three o'clock in the morning (laughs) and we went to bed and I told Carl what had happened with this little girl. And he said, well, you have to tell somebody. And I said, well, I know I have to tell somebody, but what do I call the police and say this 
you know, I had a feeling, right, you know, exactly. who, 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 and what do I tell? Mm-hmm. So, um, one of my, my, my secretary, um, was, had been very vocal about her abuse, mm-hmm. her sexual abuse as a child and had left the church several times because everyone got sick of her talking about it. No one wanted, no one wanted her to talk about it. And so she was really jacked up that I asked her to be the secretary in the recycling agency, Mm. but she liked me and she trusted me. So she did. So I call her and I tell her what happened. And she said, well, you have to tell somebody. (laughs) I said, I know I have to tell somebody. (laughs) Just tell me how, how do I do this? Um, and, um, she said, well, I guess I would start by calling the bishop. Mm-hmm. So I called the bishop and I told him what had happened. And he said that I had an overactive imagination and that I didn't like her father anyway. So that's probably why I felt that way about him. Hmm. And I didn't like his father. His father had, had tried, had, um, had an encounter with my husband and he wanted to beat the crap out of him. So yeah. Yeah. In, in front of, in front of our kids, uh-huh. you know, so I, I didn't like the man. He was right about that, but that had nothing to, oh, again, that had nothing to do with this. So um, he said, why don't we keep an eye on her for a couple of months mm-hmm. and, and take it from there, see what happens. Yeah. So I, I, I felt off the hook at that moment. I had told, and he he could take he could take care of it. Well, at two months time, guess what happened? Mm. We totally forgot about it. Oh, yeah. it. It was gone out of our minds completely, right? Yeah. And nothing was ever um, said of it again. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, our oldest daughter at at this time is in Boston, going to college. Yeah. And my best friend, Sharon, is um, lives 45 minutes from her. So I'm really excited that this were that a she she's too far away from me to college. But my best friend, another mother is right there to to kind of be her mom. And and I have more reasons now to go visit Sharon. Because yeah. I'll be Ellie's um, a ballet student, so I get to, I, I I know I'm going to her, all of her performances, so I I know I'm going to be flying to Boston to see Sharon as often a lot more often. Yeah. Um, so um, so life goes on, and um, I, I fly out to Boston to um watch Ellie perform and, and I'm going to stay three days with Ellie and a week with Sharon and Sharon comes to the performance and um, we walk around Boston that, that day and sit in a coffee shop and talk. And Sharon and I talk about things we had never talked about before. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I was thinking earlier today, how, how sad and crazy it is that as you grow up in the church, but you never talk about, Mm-hmm. So we had never talked about our upbringings. Right. Uh, it was the first time I told her I had had a baby. Uh-huh. Um, and we had been friends for 18 years. Mm. And um, she she talked about her childhood and, and abuse. I talked about mine. And I told her that I was considering confronting my parents. And she said, you do it first and then tell me how it goes. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, um, you know, it just was, I came back home from that visit see, and, and when we watched Ellie dance, we went back to Sharon and Sharon just raved about Ellie's performance all, all week that I was there. And so it was just such a good fun and bonding experience for the two of us. Mm -hmm. Um, Sharon, um, took me back to the airport on Monday, her and her family got on a plane to Park City mm -hmm. for a ski vacation. And I stayed with Ellie one more night. I flew back home on Tuesday. Yeah. And on Wednesday, I got a call that Sharon had been killed in an avalanche. Oh, no. And <laughs> I mean, it just took the breath out of me. It yeah. just, I just, you know, I was so devastated. I, I had never felt any, anything like that. Um, I turned around and got on a plane and, and met her family flying back in from, from Salt Lake to plan her funeral. Mm -hmm. And um, it was hard. And at the same time, there were so many, so many unique little miracles that just happened to me and, and her girls that um, just you know, were surprising, and at the same time, they weren't healing because it was devastating. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, it just you, when when you when you go through a funeral like that, you're just running on adrenaline, mm -hmm. just trying to make everything perfect for for her. Yeah. You know, and and okay for her kids. Her youngest was 16. Mm -hmm. Um. So I go to her funeral. I come back home, life is going on. And in, in New Hampshire, when you die in the winters, the, the avalanche was at the end of February, mm -hmm. you don't get to get buried until the spring, until oh. the grave thaws out. Right. Oh, wow. So the weekend after Mother's Day, I am back on a plane for her burial. Mm. And it was horrific because we all had now experienced life without Sharon. Yeah life without their mom and we have to put her in the ground and it, it was it was so horrible and dad had already moved on he was already dating already talking about the woman he was dating and hmm. you know. <laughs> so I I come back home from that very disturbing event and her daughter and her daughters and I packed up some of her clothes. I remember standing in her closet and just sticking my nose in all of her clothes so I could smell her. Yeah. And I went out and bought a bottle of her perfume. Mm -hmm. And to this day, it's the only perfume I wear. Yeah. Um, um, and so I came home and I, I hadn't been home for about two hours. And my first counselor calls me and says, have you heard the news? And I said, no, I've been out of town. What news? Well, so-and-so was arrested and put in jail for molesting his daughter. Now, over two years have gone by, mm -hmm. and I have totally forgotten about this. Mm -hmm. And I'm, uh, it, and it, of course, all comes flooding back, because yeah. two years have gone by. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I put down my stuff and I went over to her house to tell her mom. Mm -hmm. And I told her mom what had happened, yeah. what, what I did, 
telling the bishop and, you know, telling her I was sorry. Um, and her mom said to me, if you had told me, I would have believed you. Oh, no. So it was like, you know, the, that knife in my heart was just mm -hmm. twisted. And I went home. Man, was, was I a mess, right? Um, so I start reading this book called Secrets. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's written, it, it's, it, it's the, published by Sherry Dew. Mm -hmm. no, Does that name I, sound familiar yeah. to you? <laughs> the name sounds familiar. Um, I know who it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's called Secrets. And I think Jorgensen maybe is the author, but it's, it's stories of abuse in the church and how bishops handle it. So I, I'm reading, I'm reading the story and I'm writing in the margins of it. Hmm. And when I'm done with it, I, I give it to this mom yeah. and I say, uh, I, I want you to read this. This is, a, this is what happened to your daughter. Mm -hmm. And um, you might get some good insight on, uh, on, you know, how to treat her, how to, how to help her. Yeah. Um, and he said, and I said, and even maybe someday when she's older, she's eight now, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe someday when she's older, um, you can read it with her. So she knows you understand. Yeah. And so I, I, I leave and um, not too long after that, I get a call um, that this mom has gotten married oh. and she's on her honeymoon. And the woman who's calling me is telling me that her daughter is reading this book and asking her questions about it that she doesn't know how to answer. Mm. And I said, what's the name of the book? And she said, Secrets. And I'm like, mm -hmm. <laughs> holy hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> She's not supposed to be reading that book. Her mother is. And Jeez. and she said, well, she she's asked me this question about something that's written in the margin. Mm. And I don't know how to answer it. And I know exactly what she's talking about. And, and I say, okay, look, I, I'm tell tell the girl I'm coming over and taking her out for ice cream and to bring the book. And, and I'll talk to her about it. I'll talk to her with it. Yeah. You know, whatever question she has, I'll bring my book. She can bring hers and we can talk about it. So I go and pick up the little girl. We go up to Sonic for ice cream. So we're sitting in my car and not you know, in a public place. Right. And she has her book and she asked me this question and she asked me, and then she gets to a part and there's a part in the book where it says, and when you know about abuse and you do nothing to stop it, you are as guilty as the abuser. And in the margin I wrote, and this is what I did and the Bishop did and what you did. Yeah. And she wants to know what that means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I tell her, I told her what happened. Um, and she says to me, well, you know what you should have done? And I said, what, what should I have done? And she said, you both should have gotten down on your knees and prayed about what to do. Oh. <laughs> what a cute and little I'm girl. And I'm like, oh, this smart little eight-year-old girl. Yeah. Now I'm going to back up here for a minute because this that event with this little girl happened after her dad was put in jail, was, was in prison. Now he was tried. I went to the trial uh -huh. and 
I sat by her mother at the trial and her mother testified on behalf of the defense. And the little girl was not allowed in the courtroom because she was testifying for the prosecution, wow. right? She mm -hmm. was telling her story. Her mother was testifying to defend her husband. Wasn't she remarried? Not yet. This oh. was, so, so I had to back up here and tell oh, you. Gotcha. So she wasn't remarried yet. So it was mm -hmm. like six months after he goes in jail, she's, she's on her honeymoon, right? So, yeah. so back up to, to the trial. And I watch her as she gets on the stand to defend this man. And she's cowardly mm -hmm. and she's mousy and she can't even hold her head up. And, and I think she, she told me she would have believed me. Mm. And I'm listening to her cower and, and tell the, um, the prosecutor that um, he was only doing what he grew up knowing to do. Mm. Right. And, and, you know, this is when the brother is sitting next to me because we both are about ready to jump out of our seats listening mm -hmm. to her. Right. So then now, so then the little girl comes in to, to testify and she gives her testimony to the prosecution. She is articulate. She has her head held high. She is bright. She, she tells what happened to her in such detail Mm. that I'm just amazed that she can even say the words. Yeah. And she does it without, without disgust, without, she just, as if, you know, she's reading a book almost, you know, as if it really didn't happen to her, but it did. So I'm going to tell you. Yeah. So the, the process, the defense now is it's her turn. And I'm, I'm really scared for her because I think, man, he's just going to attack her. Mm -hmm. That's his job. And he tries to mess her up a lot. <laughs> There's not anything yeah. he can say to this little girl that gets her off track. Right. Oh, that's good. And I'm just amazed with her. And at the very end of it, he says to her, um, you got in trouble with, with one of your friends and you got punished by your dad. And that's why you're making up the story about him. She said, that's not true. She said, I, I did do something. I did get in trouble and I did get punished for it, but that's not why I haven't made up anything about my dad. Mm -hmm. I, I'm telling you the truth. And then he says to her, you're mad at your dad. Hmm. No, I'm not mad at my dad. And then he says, do you love your dad? And she says, I do. I love my dad. He's my dad. I love him. Mm -hmm. I don't love what he did to me. Oh, what a smart little girl. And I'm just thinking, oh my God, yeah, yeah right? Yeah. I, I, you know, so it's all over. The judge, um, the jury comes back. He's found guilty. The judge sentences him to 50 years. Oh, good. And says to him, in the 17 years that I've been on the bench, I've never heard of a, a, a abuse case this horrific. Mm. And the mom is sitting next to me crying. Well, and when when the court is over and, and the judgment's called and the gavel is pounded, we stand up and I hug her and I say, I'm sure you're crying that it's finally over and he's going to jail. Mm. And she said, no, I'm crying because he got such a hard sentence. Oh, and at that moment, I'm like, I, I got to get these kids away from her. She, mm. she, she 
can't raise these kids. Right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, oh, and, and the, the other thing that the little girl said on the stand is the defense attorney said to her, why didn't you tell somebody? Why didn't you tell your mother? Why didn't you tell a teacher? Why didn't you tell somebody? And she replied, I told my mother so many times. I just stopped telling her. What a smart little girl. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Wow. And at that time, I'm thinking, wow, she sat there in my face and made me feel like a piece of shit and poured guilt, more guilt all over me when she knew all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you, had, if you had told her, she would have believed you. Yeah. Right? If, if you had told me, I would have believed you. So, so I'm trying to, to get through that. Mm -hmm. And we have missionaries that come in and out of our house all the time. We had a, a safe house for missionaries and they were allowed to take off their jackets and watch TV and, mm -hmm. and play video games and, you know, just be boys. Yeah. So, so they, they came over fairly often. Uh -huh. <laughs> we fed them quite a bit and um one of the missionaries were sitting at the dinner table and he tells me um how do you how do you um get along in your ward when there's such a a, a great divide mm. and and um and I said what and he you know he hadn't been here long enough to, I said I I don't know what you're talking about he said well you have a a, a ward divide of the haves and the have-nots mm. And I was one of the have-nots. <laughs> Apparently, right. And, and, and I knew there was a whole lot of people, a whole lot richer than we were, yeah. you know, so they were the haves. And, and I thought about that, and I thought, yeah, that's kind of true. And I thought about how my kids are treated in, in young women's and primary and stuff. And mm -hmm. we also, you know, we were all in the church, but we also really had a some kind of um, – instinct to believe that our kids need to make choices for themselves mm -hmm. so ellie was in ballet if she had a ballet rehearsal or a performance on a wednesday night when mutual was or on a sunday when church was she could choose mm -hmm. she could go to ballet she could go to church it was her choice yeah. it's her life her choice um same with our boys in soccer if they had a soccer game you know so they they caught some grief yeah for not you know obeying the sabbath mm -hmm. um but I, I wasn't too bothered by it. It, it was the, it, it was their life. It's just how how I thought was was the right thing to do, the right way to parent. And so, um, so, so I'm thinking about this as this missionary is is telling me this, and I'm thinking, if there's if there's that big of a divide in the youth, then it starts with the parents. So, right. So I need to start paying attention. So I start paying attention, and there is a huge a huge divide. And so I decided I was the Riverside president. I was going to tackle this. Yeah. I was going to take this on <laughs> and I was going to bond us women together. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. And so we have our first relief society meeting after I have this enlightenment and we are all sitting at my kitchen table, all with the same idea of you know what we can do? We can have a retreat for the women in our ward and we can have testimony around the campfire on Friday night. And then Saturday we can have workshops on, 
you know, trauma. And I had just read a book called Who Moved My Cheese? And it's all about the changes in life and, yeah. and how hard change is for, for women and blah, blah, blah. So we, we could do a little seminar on that. You know, we can, we can do something to, you know, bond us together. We yeah. are so excited that we all had the same idea. So we have no doubt that it's inspired, right? Yeah, yeah. So I go to the bishop and I ask him to, um, if we can have this retreat. I had found a venue really cheap. It was only 45 minutes from home. We were only going to keep the women one night, Friday night. We'd have them home Saturday afternoon, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And this is all good. We need to do this. We need the bond as sisters, you know, this is, you know, (laughs) I need Lisa to be able to talk about her trauma as a child and you know and and we need to comfort her we need Mm -hmm. to come together for her and um so he says well let me run it by the state president and i'll get back to you Mm -hmm. he comes back to me and he says no the women can't leave the home for overnight and i said what 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 what? wait a minute i go to girls (laughs) camp every single year and cook in the kitchen for a whole week away from my family and i can do that but i can't go for one night to have some healing and some bonding time right. with the women. Wait a minute, wait huh. a minute. And so I say to him, look, I know that this is an inspired event and it's something that the women in this ward need. Mm-hmm. And if I can't get down on my knees and pray to Heavenly Father about what I can do to help the women in our world only be told by you and the state president no, then you've got the wrong girl. Mm-hmm. so that's my first strike yeah right? right i didn't know it at the time but that pissed him off mm. oh, good <laughs> so we have uh, so my first counselor is um in the hospital now with breast cancer and she has had a double mastectomy and she's back in the hospital with fluid on her lungs and she has now what is called paget's disease mm-hmm. and paget's disease is is skin cancer that affects breast cancer. So all of the skin from her mastectomy is now full of cancer. So they have to remove it mm. and do skin graft and they take all the skin off of her thigh and put it on her chest. Wow. And I go, I'm, I'm visiting her in the hospital every day. It's time for this event to come up because we get to have this retreat mm-hmm. around a campfire in the gymnasium Yeah, for for one evening. <laughs> We're going to try and pull it off anyway. Cause you know, I'm just feeling like something, ha- you know, this, we have to point this out. We have to figure out how we can come together. Right. So, so I go to, I go to, to my first counselor and I visit her and I, t- you know, tell her about we're ready for the evening and this is how it's going to happen. And I said, so what, what can I tell them about you? What, what do you want me to tell them? Mm-hmm. And she's, I said, can I tell them what's going on with you and how bad this is mm-hmm. and, and how, how hurt you're feeling that no one's coming to visit you and you, you're feeling lonely. And she said, well, you can tell them what you want, but just don't make me out to be a wimp. Uh, <laughs> I cried all the way home. Yeah. Because I wanted to tell them, I wanted her to be able to trust us enough that I could say to them how, how really in bad shape she was mm-hmm. and that she was in pain 
and that she was she was lonely and that her family wasn't visiting her and you know she she just wanted some comfort mm-hmm. and she tells me don't make her out to be a whip <laughs> <laughs> and so we have our we have our visit or we have our evening mm-hmm. and I started out with how this came about and our little round table meeting and us not getting permission to to go away and have it you know, an overnighter. And so, so we're going to do the best we can with what we have. Mm-hmm. And I tell them about Marsha, my, my first counselor. Mm-hmm. And, and I tell them, I said, you know, what I wanted her to say was tell them that cancer sucks mm-hmm. and that I'm in pain and that uh, I'm disfigured and I, I don't feel like a woman anymore and you know I, I wanted her to be able to trust us enough to be able to say those things to us and I said and she didn't and, and it just broke my heart yeah. so when I was done my secretary spoke up and she said um she talked about her sexual abuse and what it has done to her and how it has caused her to shut down raising her kids and not being able to cook dinner sometimes or clean her house or, you know, all, all of the effects, you know, of, of being worthless. And, and when she gets done talking directly, we're all sitting in a circle directly across the room is um, the bishop, the bishop who called me as Relief Society president is now in the state presidency. And it's his wife who says, why do you think you're the only one who has problems? I have eight kids and every day I take my kids to school and I get teased about how many kids I have. And, and, and I, wow. my eyes almost pop out of my head. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm thinking to myself, did, did she just attack her? <laughs> you know, and I, and I look at my secretary and, here her eyes are just filled with tears and she gets up and runs out and I know that this is what's happened to her every single time and I know I need to go run after her because no one else ever has and I don't Mm. because I have to stay in my calling Mm. stupid huh and so um so I I just sit there. And then the next person after her says, yeah, you know, I have close friends, but just a couple of them. And I'm willing to tell them, but I'm not willing to tell everybody, you know, about me. And it just goes on and on about seven women in a row, one after another, mm-hmm. just meet me, meet me, meet me, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, holy cow, this is really bad. Mm-hmm. I stay till it's over. My second counselor and I clean up as quick as we can, and we go to the secretary's door, knock on the door. Her husband answers, and and I said, I'm so sorry. Can I talk to her? And he said, you didn't stand up for her. Mm. And I I, I know, I know. Um, It wasn't expected. It it wasn't, I I, I just froze. I didn't didn't know how to stand up for her. So, So he told us where she was. We went to a bar. 
she loves to listen to jazz music. Mm-hmm. And I parked the car, and I remember thinking, the Holy Ghost won't go in the in the bar with you. <laughs> um, so you're not going to have the spirit with you, so be careful. Oh, God. And so we go in, and we sit down, and we talk to her, and we talk, and we talk. And she had already told me that she was never coming back, and she had called the bishop and said she was done. She She was never, ever going to come to church again and tell her story because this happens every time she gets attacked and it's not worth it. And so, um, so we're talking and by the time it's probably about two o'clock in the morning, by the time we realized that it was exactly what we needed to know. It was our, it was our starting point. We needed to know how bad it was to start there instead of starting in the middle of, you know, let's just happily share our stories and bond. We we needed to know really how bad it was. Mm -hmm. So the three of us left that bar that evening happier than we had been. We were just amazed that this is what had to have happened to get where we thought we needed to be as, as women. Mm -hmm. So we left the next morning was a, service project for the church. I was at it. The bishop was there and the the former bishop who was now in the state president was there. And um, the bishop says to me, it sounds like it was a pretty rough night last night. And I said, yeah, it, it was. The women weren't very kind to each other. Yeah. And um, I said, but you know, now we know, now we know what we're up against. Now we now we know what we have to tackle, and we now we got to make a plan to to tackle it, and be as gentle as as we can. And you know he says okay, and we go on our way. Well, that Sunday morning now is church, and it's Mother's Day, and it is the first day my daughter is home from Boston. Mm-hmm. Well, she got back home a couple, but it, you know she's home from her first year of of college. I'm so happy all my kids are together. My my bonus daughter Rachel is there and we're all going to church together. I'm so happy I have all the kids there. And um on the way to church the bishop said, you know, b- before sacrament meeting I want to I want to visit with you for a minute. So I'm on my way to church and the words come into my head, you are going to be hurt, but I will protect you. Mm. And I look in the rearview mirror and I go, no, I'm not. <laughs> My kids are here. What? How could I possibly get hurt? I'm going to church. Right, right. Yeah. Right? So I go to church. I go in to talk to the, into the, his office and he says, I'm releasing you today. Hmm. I've already have, I already have somebody called to take your place. Wow. And I'm like, you can't release me today. We we have this all figured out. We we know what happened. Mm-hmm. And there's a great big, huge, gaping wound in the Relief Society. And you're going to just release me without healing it, without addressing it, without, confront, you know, talking about it? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'm inspired to do so. So he... um. They do all the releases that, that that and I'm last and he sits down and sends his second counselor up. 
And the second counselor starts by saying, um, I have a really special release now. And this woman has always, in every calling she's ever had, gone above and beyond, you know, what she's been asked to do. And, you know, she's Baba. And, and, and I'm hearing words and I, and I'm seeing darts being thrown at me, but they're just bouncing off. They're not, can't feel anything. Right. I know something is happening. I can hear it, but I'm, I can't. And my daughter who had just come home from Boston leans over and says, what's going on? And I just look at her and smile, <laughs> you know, and I can feel my husband is just about ready to jump out of the seat at what he's hearing. And I really, I'm not hearing, uh, you know, I know he's telling women what happened was bad and that I had made bad choices or wrong choices or something. And so, you know, we had to, we had to end it. And this is how, you know, I can, I can hear some of this going on, but I, I can't at the same time. Mm-hmm. It just kind of sounds like, wah, 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 you know, and I can feel fiery darts coming at me, but they're bouncing off. And I'm just sitting here thinking, can I get Carl in this bubble too? Because he's going to go kill somebody <laughs> if this guy doesn't shut up. And, um, and I don't know. I, I don't think my kids had a clue what was going on. They just right. knew something was not right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, so anyway, it gets, it gets over and the bishop who is now in the state presidency comes over to me and shakes my hand and says, you know, job well done. And my husband looks at him and says, get away, Judas. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, going, oh shit, he's pissed. <laughs> and nobody wants to see my husband angry. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And so the kids go off to their classes pretty quickly. And he looks at me and he said, I can't stay here. I'm so, I am so angry that I can't stay. And I said, okay. And we, we go to Sonic. We decided to go to Sonic and get a drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're walking out to our car. And um, as we're walking out, the Bishop drives by mm. and he rolls down his window and he says, are you guys okay? And my husband says, you better keep driving because you don't want to hear what I have to say right now. <laughs> And, um, so he does, he just takes off. (laughs) Good. And, um, we go to Sonic and he just can't, he's so livid about what happened and he's telling me what was said. And I'm like, really? They said that? Mm. Really? They said that over the pulpit, (sighs) you know? And, And he said, Kim, it was just bad. It was so bad. He said, everybody now in the ward, um, is blaming you for what happened at, at, and and the bishop and the bishopric is telling the word that you are bad and he is good and you know and I'm like wow. going what <laughs> you know I'm I'm almost not believing him if I hadn't been there even mm-hmm. though I wasn't able to hear a lot of it yeah if I hadn't been there and if I hadn't felt his anger mm-hmm. because I was at this point feeling nothing and I'm just dumbfounded yeah we we go back and pick up our kids and we go home and um the the week kind of goes on but carl is really upset mm-hmm. and on tuesday on tuesday it hits me mm. and all of i'm just kind of like 
these are my friends. How could this have happened? These, these are the people I've raised my kids with. We've, we've, mm-hmm. we've been here for nearly 20 years. Mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't wrap my head around what, what had happened. Right. And then I get a phone call from a woman who says that she had heard what happened at Relief Society the past week and that she had heard that, um, she said she said that I had turned my back on everybody and that I had done something else. I don't remember what that is now. And I'm just kind of dumbfounded. It's like, that that's not true. That didn't happen. Right. And so that night, in the middle of the night, I get up and I go out in my living room and I'm on my knees because at this point in my life, I don't, I don't know what inspiration is. I I don't know if what I have thought was inspiration for me all my life, going all the way back to that 12-year-old girl in the middle of that lake, Mm -hmm. if if that came from God or the, I didn't know what that was to only believing what my church leaders told me and not believing my, my own heart, my own gut, my own, Mm -hmm. own instincts. you know, yeah, and so I, I, I tell God, I said, you're going to have to write it across the sky for me because I don't know. And these guys who are your anointed, who you have called to serve our board and to, to be over us are telling me one thing, and you're telling me a different thing. Mm-hmm. And who am I supposed to believe? So you better make it perfectly clear to me because <laughs> this is where I'm at. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after I calm down, um, and stop yelling. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the words that come to my head are, I am sorry that you have had to go to such despair. But is it times of despair when you are most likely to hear my voice? Mm. And I go, oh, oh, okay. Okay, I'll give you that. And then he said, and it's not a voice. I never, I've never heard an audible voice. It's just words that come to my head that I know didn't, weren't put there by me. Mm-hmm. And and then I, so the next words are, those who bore false witness against you will be made known to you. Mm. And I thought, what? Somebody lied about me? Yeah. <laughs> and then I remembered the phone call I got earlier that day, the woman calling and saying, I heard what happened. And then she told me two things that happened that were lies. Mm-hmm. That happened. So I thought, oh, okay. And then he says, then the next words are, I promise you that more good will come from me than bad from those around you. Hmm. And that kind of took me back to, to driving to church that day. I will protect you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get up and the, the next day, um, Carl tells me that he's going to see the bishop. He wants to find out. He wants to get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. And out who's inspired and who's not and, you know, blah, 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 what happened. Right. And so he goes and does that. And I, before he leaves, I said, you know what? You, you better pray and find out for yourself what the truth is. Mm-hmm. Because I'm pretty sure he's not going to tell you the truth. Right. And so um, he goes and, he, you know, we were, we were, I was pretty shocked. He, 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 he would no longer call and meet with the bishop than he would the man on the moon, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, um, 
So anyway, so he goes and he comes home and it's pretty late. So he's been there quite a few hours. I'm in bed. And I am now already feeling that I'm on an island and the only person on this island with me is him. Mm-hmm. And he comes home and he's getting undressed and he says to me, I said, so how to go? And he said, I, I, I don't know, Kim. I don't know who's inspired here. I, I don't know what's going on here. And I am now feeling like Dorothy on the bed and it's starting to spin. Mm-hmm. Because the one person that I feel like I have is now questioning me. And I said, you know, I said, I, to- I-, I told you to get the answers first before you went. I said, I said, what did he tell you? And he said, he said, well, what he told me, um, I agree with him. He should have released you. Hmm. And I said, okay, what did he tell you? And he said, well, he told me that, um, you know, you... Um, told the women that they weren't um, being good sisters to each other and that Relief Society sucked. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Carl, those words never came out of my mouth. The the thought never even came to my head, has never been in my head. I said, he's lied to you. He's lying to you. And he said, why would he lie to me? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you what I know. He got mad at me for the time I told him that if I couldn't get on my knees and get my own answers to just to be told different by him, that he had the wrong girl. And I said, and he's worried that I'm going to tell people that I told him about the little girl who was abused mm-hmm. and we did nothing. Yeah. And so this gave him the ammunition now to to do what he's wanted to do all along Mm. and all of a sudden the the light bulb went out for him and he was like oh we keep going we keep going it's really hard no i'm not kidding nobody will talk to me i will walk up to some women and say something and they literally will turn around and walk away the the woman who it was my son Um, first year of seminary, the woman teaching seminary, he and I were standing in the chapel after sacrament meeting and she walked up to him to give him the information, greeted him, nice to him, totally ignored me. Didn't even acknowledge I was standing there and turned around and walked away. And this went on, this went on for weeks, you know, and, and it's hard, it's hard to go to church. Mm -hmm. And, um, so one, one morning at it's fasting testimony meeting and I'm in the shower and thinking about, I, I don't want to go, but why, why do I, why do I want to go and be in a room full of people who don't even like me, who, mm-hmm. who won't even talk to me, who, and the words come to my head as I have loved you, love one another. And I'm like, Oh, that's right. right. I, I know that. <laughs> oh, look at all the shit I've done in my life. You know, right, right. <laughs> All the bad things I've done, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've always felt I'm a bad person. Look at all that I've done. And you still love me. So, okay, I can do this. They, they can be as bad as they want and treat me like they want. And I can still love them. This is my ward family. This is where I belong. Okay, okay. So I go to church. And while I'm at, while I'm at church, the sacrament's being passed. And I flip my scriptures open. And it's the scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants that says something about if you, if you, um, insult a man in public 
then you should address it in public. And if you do, if, if somebody insults you in private, then you should address it in private. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. I will not be standing up and addressing anything. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I was insulted in public and it should be. But no, no. And hell no. Yeah. <laughs> so I close my book and I'm just sitting there listening and, you know, I'm still feeling like I'm supposed to go up and say something. And I'm still saying no, no and no. And open my scriptures again. And guess what it says? Uh. <laughs> As I have loved you, love one another. And I say, I can do that. Mm-hmm. I can go tell them that. Yeah. So I stand up, bear my testimony, and tell them that I've heard the lies that have been spread and that I'm hurt. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hurt me that no one will address me or talk to me anymore. And But I still love them. They were still my family, and I forgive them. And that, you know... I wanted their forgiveness and to just move past this. Yeah. And I sat down, my husband put his arm around me. He said, you were way too nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, I was, I was kind of like, yeah, that's all. That's the only way I could do it. Yeah. And so, um, well, I'm thinking it's it's done now, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have said it. I have apologized. I have forgiven them. I've asked for their forgiveness. I've said I've loved, I love them. It's mm-hmm. over. It's, you know, now we can move forward. Right. And I get up from sacrament meeting just ready to, you know, have my friends back. And this lady walks up to me who I had been a visiting teacher for for years and was inactive, had a horrible history of abuse in the church and everybody taking her husband's side and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and not her. So, but she said, I got up this morning and someone told me, I, something told me I had to come to church. You know, I haven't been here for umpteen many years. And she said, but I had to come to church. So here I am. And she said, now I know why. Oh. And I said, okay. And she said, I just wanted to say thank you for, for standing up for yourself and telling them that they hurt you. And she didn't know anything. She said, I don't know anything that's going on. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you. And I know that's why I'm here for you. But I also want to tell you this. She said, I saw you stand up. And when I saw you stand up, I saw every single person in this building's wall go up. And I don't think one person heard what you said. Right. And I was like, no way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that that's not even possible. And you know, so she leaves. I go out into the foyer where, you know, a bunch of women are standing and I jump right in the middle and I'm all happy. They all turn around and walk away. Mm-hmm. And I'm like going, Well, I I guess maybe it's gonna take some time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it, it's good for me now, you know, right, I'm feeling right. pretty good, but you know, I guess everyone else still thinks I'm pretty bad. So we go home, the next Sunday comes around, and before we go to church, the bishop calls us and says, I'd like to see you in my office, and I say, okay, and we go in, and I'm telling Carl on the way to church, he's, he's got another calling for me, he's going he's gonna to give me a calling. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> everything's, everything's okay now. Mm-hmm. He heard what I said, you know. Yeah. And we go in there, and the first thing out of his mouth is, he says... Several ward members have come to me and have told me that you are going around recruiting people to have me released. What? 
And I, I said, what? Can you do that? <laughs> and, and Carl looked at me and said, Kim, this is not a joke. <laughs> so now I know, I know that he's on fire again and, you know, right. love, love things that go over my head. And I looked at him seriously and I said, really? I know how this works. I, uh-huh. I know that's not how it works. Why would I go around to anybody recruiting to have you released when that's not how it works? That doesn't make sense to me. Why would anybody tell you that? Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't know, but that's what's been happening. People have been coming in here and telling me that, you know, you're trying to get me released. And I said, it, it is made up. It, it is pulled out of the sky. It is pulled out of thin air. I have never said anything about what has happened what you have said to me, what you have done to me, what you have done to my family. I have uh-huh. not said anything to anybody about any of this. Uh-huh. So if people are coming to you, either you are making this up or they're making it up yeah. because it, it didn't happen. Uh-huh. And um, we get up ready. He said, uh, I said, you know, we, we get ready to leave. And I say to him, you know, people have left the church over less than this. You are willing to jeopardize me and my family mm-hmm. by, by doing this? And he said, I'm inspired. Jeez. Oh, and my husband's behind me. And as he walks out, he said, don't you ever call us into this office ever again, unless it's for a court. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, oh, shit, now we're going to get excommunicated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we sit in sacrament meeting that afternoon, not knowing if there was one person in that building that was our friend, because who would say that? Who would make that up and go to him and say that? Yeah. And so, so on our way home, he says to me, my husband says to me, I can't protect you here anymore. Mm. We have to leave. Because I can't protect you. I, I don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. I don't. I don't know what's coming next. And so I said to him, "That's probably the best thing my heart has heard in a long time." Because mm-hmm. I had just been fighting and trying everything I could, yeah. <laughs> you know, to undo what he did, mm-hmm. and. So we left and we went to another ward in the same stake. Mm-hmm. And we spent about two years trying to get our names, our records changed from that ward, from our ward to, you know, and they don't do that. You have to, you have to um, go to the ward you belong in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they set up a meeting for us for the bishop to apologize to us. And the area authority is there, two state presidents, and I think three three bishops. The bishop of the board we're attending, the bishop we're supposed to be attending, and then and that was the bishop that that uh, spread all the lies and gossip about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his apology was, whatever I may have done mm-hmm. to hurt you, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> my husband was like, what? Right. That that's an apology. That's not an apology. 
And um, they go back and forth a little bit. One of the stake presidents gets in my husband's face mm -hmm. and says, he apologized to you. Why can't you just accept it? And that's when he when he's done. And yeah. he stands up and, and he says, that wasn't an apology. You can say what you want about me. That wasn't an apology. And if you think it was, we have no common ground and we are leaving. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so then after that, we were labeled as unforgiving, unrepentant, um, chip on our shoulder, um, not... Um, not agreeing with authority or what, whatever that word is that they use that, you know, that, and, um, the state relief society president said, well, she just thinks she's more inspired than Bishop. <laughs> so it just wasn't, wasn't going to end. It just wasn't going to end. Yeah. And, um, we, my mother had, um, come over and told me that, because we weren't attending the ward where our records were, I could no longer attend the temple. Well, I, I said, well, well, I know that. <laughs> but but I, I am being true to myself mm -hmm. and being true to what I know is true. And somehow God's going to work that out for me. And um, so she storms off because she thinks she's talking sense to me now that oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to come back because I can't go to the temple. <laughs> um, and so about two hours after that, my best friend and had been my, my first counselor, second counselor had come over and she said, I just have to tell you what happened to me in the temple today. Hmm. And I'm like, okay. And um, it's been, it's been months now. So I've, it's been that, it's been a while that I've been to the temple. It's been months that this, this is, transpired she said i was in the temple and i was folding up my robe and all my stuff and you know putting getting ready to put it in its bag and she said and a feeling of darkness came over uh, it was like a feeling of evil it was so evil that she said my hands started shaking i didn't know what was happening because i was in the temple a sacred holy place where there no evil abounds and i am feeling this evil come over me and she said, and I turned around and the bishop was standing there. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, God, that's interesting. Because my mom just got here and told me, came here and told me that I couldn't go to the temple because, you know, I said, and, and, and that's who was at the temple. I'm kind of glad I'm not going. Yeah. And then there are my scriptures again, my handy scriptures sitting on my table. And I open them up and guess what it says? It says, I can't record, I, I never could quote scriptures, but yeah. I could tell you about them. Um, and it says something to the effect that even, even evil can dwell in a temple. Mm. So what, what you need to do is make your home a temple and make it a place of safety and security and peace where people can come and feel the spirit. Yeah. And they were like, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to do that. I can yeah. do that. So all of a sudden that burden, which wasn't a huge burden. It wasn't like I was consternating about it. It was just my right. mother coming over to give me guilt mm -hmm. um, about not going. Because I knew that we were doing the right thing. I knew that what had happened to us was was not right, was mm -hmm. bad, yeah. was, you know. Um, and so um, 
now I had validation, you know, again, it's like, okay, so I'm good. I'm okay. So we move on. And, um, a couple of years later, I get a feeling that, that he's been released and that we should go back to our home ward now mm -hmm. that we have, we have one child at home and whether he, not, he's, none of the kids go to the church, the church doesn't, the boys don't go to the church anymore with us. We're going to a different ward. They don't go mm -hmm. with us anymore. We, we don't make them. It's too hard. It's, right. you know, it, it was just too hard. And so we didn't make them. They gladly accepted the invitation not to attend with us. Um, and my son had gone to seminary shortly after this had happened. And he was very upset and came home and said he was never going back to seminary because the lesson that day was about me and how mm -hmm. I thought I was more inspired than the bishop and, you know, how how we could let our parents do that and not to listen to our parents if 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 they were like me, thinking they were more inspired than the bishop. And I said, what? Yeah. The, the lesson was about me? And he said, well, they didn't use your name, Mom, but I know the story, so I know that's what they were talking about. Oh, like, oh my God. You know, I said, no, no, Scott, you don't ever have to go back to seminary. If, if that's what they're teaching you, then right. I, I don't want you there anyway, right? Yeah. And so... Um, so I get the feeling that we're supposed to go back to our ward and, and we do that. And in before that happens, I, I had gone to a program um, called discovery. It was a Dr. Phil program and it's a, a three part program where you learn about your past mm -hmm. and your present and your future. And so the past had really my childhood really had come back to me full force at that time. Mm -hmm. And I am having flashbacks about sexual abuse. I'm having flashbacks about things I don't even know about. And the violence is coming back. And so I'm having all this going on and I'm not fragile, but I'm, I'm really, <laughs> just trying to figure it out mm -hmm. i'm just trying to figure out i'm trying to figure out who i am right and and um so um i i tell carl we we, we need to go back to church and our, we, we have friends there that we had been friends with since we lived in texas that had severely betrayed us mm. And they were there. And um, we we went to the bishop. We, we took our son and we went to the bishop and we told him the whole story about what happened. Mm -hmm. And um, he said to me, why are you telling me this? And I said, because I'm tired of carrying it. Mm -hmm. And I can have it. And, and you can deal with it because this is what happened. And it, it's now yours. You're the bishop. And he said to us, he said, okay, so this, this is what I'll, do. I said, so will you pray about it? And, and so you know that it's the truth that I'm telling you the truth that we are telling you the truth. And, um, he said he would, and, um, never got back to me about that, but he did say, I, I will tell you when this family is, he said, what I'll do is, so I'll put them in a different Sunday school class. So you won't have to run into them in Sunday school. She's in primary, so you won't see her if you go to Relief Society. And he is now um, in, a, in the high priest quorum instead of the elders quorum. So you won't run into him in priesthood. 
except during the opening exercises. He said, so I can do that for you. I can keep them away from you. I can keep you away from them. So he did that for a couple months and, and he would even call us and say, um, we're having a war party. They're going to be out of town. So if you want to come, you won't run into them. And, you know, so he, so it made me think that he believed us. Mm-hmm. He believed that what had happened had happened. And then a couple months went by and he called and he said, um, I need to talk to you and Carl because I'm going to give this man a position and I will no longer be able to call you and tell you um, what what's going on. And he said, um, so I just want to talk to you about it. And I'm thinking to myself, I said, did you, did you pray? Did you get an answer about what I asked you to pray about? And he said, I did. I didn't get an answer. I said, you can get an answer about a calling, but you can't get an answer about my life or the life of my, my husband and my children. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, that seems a little strange to me because this seems to be of much more significance mm-hmm. than calling. And he said, well, I just didn't get an answer, but I know I'm supposed to call him to this. And so I just want to talk to them. So um, I start thinking there's only two callings that he could have possibly given that would affect us. One is in the bishopric and one is in the young men's presidency. Mm. Now, our son didn't go to young men's, but if you are on the record, you still have you still are running the risk of a young men's president or a someone from the quorum calling you and inviting you to something, right? Mm -hmm. It hadn't happened, but that doesn't mean it wasn't going to happen. Right. So those were the only two positions I could think of that he would be called to that would affect us. And I told Carl, I said, I'm out. I'm, I'm out. I'm not going, I'm not going to meet with him because if what we told him about this family, about this man, he can still call him to a position of authority, then I'm done. I I can't be here anymore. And so um, we sold our house Mm -hmm. and we left. We we moved to a whole different town. We we never went back to church. We still believed the church was true. At that time. At that time. And, um, but um, um, when we left, we were working at the time for CPS, Child Protective Services. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Katrina had happened. And we had a whole influx of people from Katrina on, who needed welfare. So mm-hmm. the state of Texas took all the money they could out of CPS and put it into welfare. Mm-hmm. So our jobs were cut. We, we were transferred to welfare. And it was the job from hell. We we hated it. We both hated it. So it wasn't long before we weren't working for for um, the state anymore. Or and um, when we were with CPS, we had formed a relationship with a um, temporary children's shelter that took kids in when we removed them from homes, and we'd take them there. And um, a couple of weeks after we lost, we quit. They called us and said they had a building on the premises on their campus that they wanted to turn into a girl's home and they wanted Carl and I to be the house parents. Mm-hmm. So we, we went and did that. We sold everything except our bed. <laughs> and we moved into this girl's home. Rachel, who was our um, bonus daughter that had lived with us since she was 15. She lived 
right down the street from us, just a couple miles away. And she was at this girl's home with us decorating and helping us constantly. She was so excited we were we were doing this. She wanted to be involved all the way. And the day before um, we opened that home, she's killed in a car accident. Mm. So we are staying with friends because the, the house isn't licensed yet. And we're, it's supposed to get licensed that weekend and we're going to open it. It's the 4th of July. And we have a funeral to plan. And we are just devastated. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so we get through that and we find out shortly, uh, we've been in the girls' home two or three, four months and we are realizing they are not who they presented themselves to be. Mm. And, and they are stealing money. Jeez. And they are not doing what they said they would do to help us with the girls. And now we are in the middle of being the part of the problem instead mm. of the solution. And we are pretty beside ourselves of what to do because yeah. we have six girls in our home that we were invested in and that mm. we had, we had, helped and had bonded with and made relationships with and it 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 just had been an amazing experience and now we find out who they are so it ends up that we start collecting the data that that the information and we 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 gather up all the information we can and we go to the president of the board of directors and say this is what's going on here we can no longer be a part of it and if you don't do something about it we will and we'll, we'll go to the, the DA, the Dallas DA, we will go to the media. But mm -hmm. if you don't take care of this, because these girls deserve better. Right. So, of course, you know, we're fired on the spot. Mm -hmm. And um, we put out the information. And, man, we, we, we don't leave because we have a contract with them that says they, can, they can't fire us, you know, for no good reason and they know that they call the cops they try to get the cops to get us, kick us out you know my husband is just a tough hard ass mm -hmm. and he can withstand all this and here i'm going ah! <laughs> <laughs> we are living in hostile territory yeah. and you know it was hard but um but we we left there and once we left there um it was the first time i had time to grieve for Rachel. And um, it, it was a good time and a good space for me. Um, because while all this stuff was going on with church, um, Marsha had died, mm. my first counselor. And when she died, they, um, they wouldn't let me be involved in any way, shape or form with her funeral. Mm. And they had a family prayer at the hospital the night she died. They they wouldn't they wouldn't even let me in. And so that you know that was hard. Um, I had a girlfriend here that was friends with Sharon and I in in uh, in Chicago that lived in Salt Lake, and um, she invited me to go on a trip with her. She was. She had cancer and didn't know how much longer her parents took her on this three-week 
trip of U.S. history and church history, and she invited me to go along with them um, to help take care of her while she was on that trip. And um, it was another one of those moments with a friend from church that we had never talked about anything. And before she died, we had talked about everything. Mm -hmm. And um, before she died, um, she called and she said, um, I think I only have a couple of weeks. Can you come so I can, so you can be here when I'm still lucid, <laughs> when I'm still not so drugged up with morphine that I don't know what's going on. So I went to that and on that trip with her, her parents were with us and her dad you know, even though I got to hear from her things that were traumatic in her childhood regarding her dad, it wasn't abuse. It was, it was a lot, it was some neglect. It was putting the church first. It was stuff like that. It wasn't, mm -hmm. but he was so kind to me on that trip mm -hmm. and such, you know, I, I remember so many times thinking that that, that was the dad that I always had pictured. Mm. That that was the dad who who I, I wanted to have as a dad, you know. He he might have been involved in the church. We all we all are, but he was such he was just so good to us. And um her mother the same. Her mother was so good to us. And when I was there that week that she died, um it was it was a really hard time, but it was the most beautiful time. Her whole family was there. Her sister was a nurse, and so her sister had been allowed to give her the morphine, mm. keep her comfortable and out of pain. And the day that she died, I watched her 16-year-old daughter crawl in bed with her mm. and hold her as she took her last breath. And I watched every single one of her family members place their hand on her. Mm. And I just remember, it was so opposite of what happened with Marsha that... It was so beautiful to watch this family come together, no matter what their differences were or their beliefs were. They loved each other. Mm -hmm. They showed that love openly with each other. And it was it was so beautiful to see that it, it just took me back to so many times in my life where I missed out on those opportunities, but now here they're 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 being more good will come to you from me than bad from those around you yeah because those things were happening in the midst of all of this stuff going on at church and um I, I i couldn't understand it but i i got a lot of comfort and a lot of hope from it and so um after all of that is over, we we haven't been to church now for quite a few years. I'm I am thick in this healing journey, mm -hmm. and I'm going to group therapy, and I'm going to seminars, and I'm going to retreats, and I'm whatever I can find that that feels right. That oh, I need to go to this. And in 2005, I had come home from this program I told you about, and I turned on the TV and I was watching 48 Hours, and it was an interview with this woman who had made a documentary film about searching for herself. Oh. And I thought, oh, I'm doing that. Cool. <laughs> and so I got the I I ordered the DVD and I watched the film. It's called Searching for Angela Shelton. 
And I, I was just blown away. I, I was so amazed by this documentary that I started having Angela Shelton parties at my house and to come over and watch the movie. And no, nobody would come, uh, you know, one or two or, or none, you know, it's just like, nobody wants to talk about this. And so, um, so I'm helping this woman at this spiritual retreat. And she tells me, you know, she said, you know, um, you have a heart for women and you need to write a retreat for women. And I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> that, that might be in your wheelhouse, but it, it, I, I wouldn't know the first thing to write. I, I, no, that's the craziest idea I've heard. And so she, she kind of bugged me about it for a while. She kind of took over for it and, and what she was telling me horrified me. So I said, oh, okay, okay, okay. I'll try. I'll try. I'll, I'll try. And that, that summer, it was in 2014. Um, I sat down with two women. We met at my kitchen table every week for the whole summer. And, and the most incredible magic happened every single time we got together and we wrote what we thought was a really beautiful and healing retreat, but because we hadn't done it, we didn't know for sure. We just, it looked good on paper, right? Yeah. And so we invited some leaders from the community to come to my house and we had a mock retreat and it actually blew us all away. It was so good. Mm. So, so we launched that retreat. And um, in the middle of that, we start the retreat with showing, searching for Angela Shelton. Nice. And so I'm looking through the internet, trying to find more stuff about Angela Shelton and things that she's done. And she has written a, a book, a workbook called Be Your Own Hero. Mm -hmm. And so I think, oh, hey, maybe I can learn some more from here and add it to our retreat. And, you know, so I, I, order her workbook and all the, the little videos that she's got to go with it. And mm -hmm. I start doing it. I get two weeks into it and it's like, yeah, no, I'm not doing this. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Carl and I fly somewhere and I'm showing him the workbook. We read it page by page. And he was like, wow, this is really good. And I'm like, wow, this is scaring the shit out of me. I'm not mm -hmm. doing this. <laughs> and so, so he's like, wow, this is really good. Kim, this is really good. So, a few, uh, some more time goes by. I decide I, I do the workbook and I say, um, okay, God, if you want me to do this workbook, I'll do it. But I've got to have something fun to go along with it because I can't dive into this for a whole year. It was a 52 week, you know, weekly lesson. Yeah. And I said, I can't do this for a whole year and dredge up all this stuff and go to work right. and, you know, and so that was when art got dropped in my lap mm. and I had done crafts before, you know, Relief Society, you do crafts, right? But mm -hmm. um, my mom was a very good artist and she was very sure I was not and, and told me so many times. And um, so I, I'm, I was really confused by art, but I did it anyway. And I took the art class and I loved it, but everything I did by the end of class, I threw away because it was so bad. Mm -hmm. And um, I told my husband, I said, so the class is over. Guess what I learned? And he said, what did you learn? I said, I am really uptight. Mm. 
And he said, well, not all the time. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 you don't have to be nice to me because I don't know how I have lived my life. I was 56 years old at the time, not knowing how uptight I am. Yeah. So here's my next, my next job to tackle is, you know, how to, how to let go, how to, how to be okay with myself, how to just be okay. And so that started me on, on, um, my journey of healing art. And that probably has been the biggest that and the be your own hero workbook are probably the two biggest things that have catapulted me into not just healing, but implementing it in my life. You know, you, you can learn about all these changes and, and think, Oh, this would be good to change, or this would be good for me, but implementing it's a whole other thing. And I took a class from Brene Brown and at the end of every class, we had an art journal entry that we had to do. And I wasn't familiar with it, but I went along with it. Her saying was, how do we connect what we've learned from our head and connect it to our heart? Mm-hmm. And do and how do we implement it in our life? And we do that by using our hands, by being creative. Mm-hmm. And that so resonated with me that it was just like, okay, this is how I'm this is how I'm gonna get there. This is how I'm gonna do this. This is how I'm gonna be able to let go and relax a little bit and enjoy my life and you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So a few months after that. I'm in this art group online, uh, art journaling class, and the woman asks me to write my story of how art healed my heart. Mm. And I say no. Uh, you know, it's like, n- n- no, no, my, no, no. It, it involved, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so a couple of weeks went by, my husband's watching football, and I go into my office and I start writing my story about heart. And it happened to be, mostly about my daughter that I gave up for adoption. Yeah. Now, now I left out of the story 10 years prior to this, through this program that we had attended, we had met a woman that had placed her daughter for adoption in a closed adoption through the Gladney home, a, a, a Catholic home in Dallas. And um, she had just found her. Mm. And I'm at this program going, yeah, I can't do this. I can't talk about this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And it just keeps getting thrown on my lap. But by the time the program is over, I tell her that I want what she wants. I said, you know, I can't even say the words. I can't even say that I gave my child up for adoption. Mm -hmm. I said, but I'm telling you because I want what you want. And she just was all over, I'll help you find her. I'll show you where I went. And And so the next day I was on the phone with her. She's given me all the information of who to call. And I call them. They, it's cost 500. Now we'd already spent previously years before a thousand dollars hiring somebody to find her. Mm -hmm. It went nowhere. Um, So this was $500. They wanted 250 up front to start the search. And then if they found her, if they if they were successful, then 250 more to give me the information. If they didn't find her, then you know all I'm losing is 250. So I'm like, okay, I, I can do this. And so we we get on it right away. A month goes by, and they call me and they tell me they find her. Oh wow! And she wants nothing to do with me. And my kids, we had told my kids this was happening and that I really felt confident by how this came about that they were going to find her. And both Rachel and Ellie said, 
we're happy for you, mom, but what, but what if she doesn't want to meet you? Like, are you prepared for that? Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to them, I don't know if she's alive or dead. Mm -hmm. I don't know what her name is. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about her life. I don't know what she looks like. I don't know anything. So I think right now, if I could just know that she's alive and what her name is, if she doesn't want to meet me, I think I'll be okay with that. Mm -hmm. I, I think I can deal with that. If I can just have a little bit of information. Well, that was a crock of shit because, you know, that was just me, you know, feeding bullshit to myself. Because yeah. when I found out she didn't want to have anything to do with me, I was devastated. I, I actually said to Carl, I have I have her address, I have her name. Can we just can we just get in the car and drive there and let me knock on her door and see her? And you know, maybe if she sees me, she'll change her mind. Maybe if she knows I always wanted her, she'll change, you know, maybe something. And you know, I quickly came to my senses and knew I couldn't do that. But, right. um, but that's how I felt immediately. I just, you know, so, so here I write this, this story of how art has healed my heart and it's all about her. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty surprised that that's what came out, but you know, that's what it was. I sent it to the woman and said, you know, she said, well, we're going to feature you on one of these months. You know, it's like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a small group, so I was okay with it. And um, so now here we are 10 years later. And I'm, I've gone through this workbook. I'm, I'm doing art. And I'm home alone. And I get a message on Messenger saying, this might be a really weird question, but I'm looking for my biological family. And I wonder if you know anything about a girl who was born on such and such date in St. Louis, Missouri. And the name is not the same name that this agency gave me. Oh. I'm going, hmm, I wonder what this is about. So I message her back and say, yes, I gave birth to a daughter on this name at, uh, at this date and this is the hospital where she was born and yes it was in st louis and she messages me back and she says i said but i found her um i've already found her and she messaged me back and she said would you mind telling me her name and so I tell her her name, and she said, I've never heard anybody by that name. She said, but I did a DNA test, and mm -hmm. I am second cousins with a guy by the name of Mark Beckstrand. And it's like, yeah, that's my first cousin. That's my dad's brother's son. That's So I'm going DNA match, and I am just... What is happening? Carl's not home. Yeah. I, I didn't even know if I should reply to her until he got home because I didn't know what was going on. But I'm so excited that she has she has some DNA stuff mm -hmm. here. You know, yeah. she so I we text each other back and forth. She asked me if I'll take a DNA test. I'm 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 in right now. I ordered the test. Um, um she sends me pictures of her. Oh. She looks like she looks like me when I was little. She looks like Ellie, mm. and she's we're, we're emailing each other back and forth, waiting for this DNA test to to come back. And one night um, early on into this, Carl says to me, "I'm in bad, and I can feel he's angry." <laughs> 
and I'm thinking, oh shit, now what I do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is he angry about? And he said, he, I said, what's the matter? And he said, somebody lied to you, and I want to know who. Yeah. And I'm like, what? What? What do you mean somebody lied to me? Mm-hmm. And he said, Kim, either given right that we hired to find your daughter lied to you, or or the information that she was given, they lied. Mm-hmm. The church lied to her because Yvonne is not your daughter. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you're right. You know, I was so in the future already of meeting this that I had forgotten, Mm -hmm. you know, or I just put that, you know, and I'm like, oh, you're right. I wonder who lied to me. So the next morning we get up and we get online and we find out that this agency that we hired that had found this other mother's daughter had scammed me. Uh And gave me a false name, a false address. You know, so imagine if I had gotten in the car that day and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and driven to that person's house. <laughs> we, like, we would have found out right away, right? Surprise! Um, I'm not your mom. <laughs> so the the um, amazing thing about it was, so I in one of the emails, um, I said to her, "Can I tell you what I wanted to tell you for 40 years?" and mm. She said yes, and I email her that, you know, that it, it was never my choice. I, I never wanted to do this. Um, I, I haven't, there hasn't been a day that has gone by that I haven't thought about you, a, a birthday that I haven't wished you happy birthday and wondered what you look like and how you were and if you were happy and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And um, so she, she emailed me back and she said those were probably the best words I could have heard. And, and I had this, I had this story that I had written several months earlier that was about her, that was kind of validation of, see, I wrote this about, it's about you. It's about how my life has not been Mm. healed because of this Mm. and how this is the one thing that I just can't seem to get past. Um, and, um, so I was so I was so grateful. So the DNA comes back in probably about a month, and and of course we're a match. And before it comes back, one night Carl says to me, um, he asked me to print off all the emails mm-hmm. that she sent me, and I print them and he reads them. And that night he says to me, I I don't need a DNA test to know mm-hmm. that she's your daughter. She she's kind, she's funny, she's generous, yeah, she's beautiful, and. And I don't, I don't need that test to know that she's your daughter. Mm. And he said, and she's my daughter too, Aww. because any part of you is a part of me. And I'm so glad she found us. Mm. So I'm just like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I call her. Um, we, we talk again on the phone. It's a week before my birthday, my 61st birthday. And she says to me, do you want to FaceTime on my, on your birthday? And I'm, I'm just like, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. And I put down the phone after that and I realized for the first time I am really breathing, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can't even cry because I'm finally breathing and, um, and I'm, I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna FaceTime her in, in, in a week. You know, I gotta lose hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. I gotta get my hair cut. I gotta mm-hmm. I gotta buy new clothes. <laughs> <laughs> all in a week, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. 
you know, and it was almost like, I gotta look like I did what I had her and I don't, and, uh, you know. And so um, I'm scared to death for this FaceTime call. And she calls me, and the first time I see her, she has this beautiful smile on her face and she's welcoming. Mm. She's so kind and she's so gentle with me. Mm. And she knows I'm nervous and she says it's okay to be nervous. And it just was such an amazing moment in time. You know, I remember asking Carl not to leave because I didn't know emotionally how I was going to handle it, but she was so perfect. She was so, it was, it was just amazing. So, um, she flies to Dallas to meet me. We spent a weekend um, talking. We talked all weekend. That was just in September. In November, we came to Salt Lake because she lives 20 minutes from Ellie. Mm. Mm. So, so we came to Salt Lake for Thanksgiving, and we stayed two weeks, so I have a little more time to meet her family and yeah. to meet her. And um, we leave, and in January... No, right, yeah, it was January. Right after Christmas, Ellie and Kyle call us and tell us that they have an opportunity to go to Australia for a year to 18 months. And it, can we come and live in their house huh? while, while they're gone? Because yeah. they don't want to rent it, they don't want to sell it, and they don't want to just leave it. So we pack up our stuff and we move to um, live in their house. We plan to go back to Salt Lake, but but um, we I I I I'm pretty excited that I have time to get to know her. And there there's a little bit of pushback there because I'm not sure she knew how to take that. Mm. You know, was I going to invade her life? Was I going to you know want to be her mom you know <laughs> you know what was it that I wanted kind of yeah. sort of and so you know I I held back and and tried to let her lead all of this yeah. and then COVID hit so for a year you know we didn't see her then they came back we moved to North Salt Lake and then but um the point of all this is is this is when we this is when we left the church mm. um when we moved here I remember saying to Carl on the way here, he made a joke and said, ah, we're moving to the belly of the beast. <laughs> and um, we kind of laughed at that. And um, I said to him, you know, maybe we'll be able to find our way back. The, these are our people. This is, this is our church. This is, this is where we belong. You know, we have the truth and, and, and that's what I want in my life. Yeah. And we went to church with Ellie a few times before they left for, and I was so uncomfortable. I was so mad during one meeting that I got up and walked out. Mm. And um, I I was just really trying to figure out how, how is this going to happen? How are we going to reconcile what happened to us and what I see going on? And, you know, we wanted to know back in Texas, how far up the ladder this went, right? In regards to sexual abuse and this little girl and what had happened to, to us. And um, we, we, we just wanted to know how far, was this just a little 
stupid area or, you know, we didn't know because this was the true, true church. And if, if they at the top knew this was happening, they, they would put a stop to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, when I see what's going on and I'm not feeling anything of healing or, um, the meeting that I walked out of was shaming people who didn't have, um, retirement accounts or, or put away for their shaming them Mm. and, and help telling them they needed to make a plan. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, Oh my God, there are so many more important things that you need to be addressing than finances. You stupid people. So I have a thought about that. I saw a video at one point. It's been in the last few years um, that the church was trying to get. uh, It was a video about like um, inheritance. And um, yeah, so I was wondering maybe if that was something that went right along with that, that they're trying to get people to put money in their retirement so that they will have money. And then when their kids um, go to actually take that. They've signed it over to the church. Yep. And yeah, 100%, it's just that's what it's about. Okay. Yeah. And just, I, I couldn't even sit and listen to it. I, mm-hmm. I got up and walked out. I'm so <laughs> upset that this is what was on their heart. Yeah. So, um, but you know, <laughs> my, my husband said, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see a way back, but who knows what could happen. The truth has to come out, Kim, before we, we can ever go back and be true to ourselves. Okay, I, I get that. So at this time, Ellie and Kyle have just left, and I see an advertisement for the movie premiere in Salt Lake City of No Crime and Sin. Oh, yes. And I say, we have to go to this. And... um he says, okay, we buy the tickets, we go to this, and I am completely broke mm-hmm. watching this film. And we left there, and I said to him, there is no way that there is any revelation or inspiration in this church mm-hmm. if this is what's happening, and I don't. It does. It's not starting at the bottom. I don't know. I don't need to know how high it goes anymore because I know it is starting at the top, mm-hmm. and and it's never going to be addressed. And so I can't ever figure out how this could be the true church right. if this is allowed to happen on the scale that it is allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like, hold on there, Missy. (laughs) (laughs) And I stayed up all night researching and looking for stuff. And because I just, there was no way, there was no way to me this church could be true and and that film be made. Mm -hmm. And so the next day, actually it was the next night when I went to bed. I had memories return of a missionary in our home. I was 15. And, you know, I don't like to say the word molested because it sounds so clown carish. It sounds so 
not not real, you right. know, it, you know, it minimizes it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, in uh, Dana's episode, in Dana's episode, we were talking about um, naming it, actually saying right. what yeah, happened exactly. because molest. Yeah, I remember be, that. It's yeah. molested. What does that mean? Right. Yeah. What he he touched your breast. What 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 does molested mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's not so bad. So um. So he he first started touching my breasts and then he well i was playing the piano and then he would come over and he would take my hand and stick it down his pants and he obviously he had an erection right and then he would finger me and it was like every single time he came over he was grabbing me and and pulling me in somewhere and even at church Mm -hmm. um we met at church in an old um old home and with all sorts of little nooks and crannies and he would pull me inside somewhere and 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 do something and touch me somewhere or have me touch him Mm. i always thought it was my fault always because i was bad Mm -hmm. i I, you know, um, so I, I just blocked it out. I had, I really had not even, that memory had not even come to me until the night after watching that movie. Mm. It took me two weeks to tell my husband. Mm. I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed. I was 15. I should have known better. Mm. I could have told him to stop. I never, I just froze. I never ever said a word or did any, I just froze. I just let him do what, whatever it is he wanted to do and be done. And, and I was pretty sure my husband was going to say, you were old enough to know better. Or why did you let him do that? Or, you know, he said nothing of sorts. Um, but, um, after that, I I went home to my retreat, and I have I have anywhere from five to seven women who serve under me at this retreat, and I told them the, for the first time in my life that I had been raised in this church, and that this is what I found out, and I didn't know how I could have been so duped mm-hmm. so betrayed yeah. and I didn't know that this was how the truth of my story was going to be settled I thought the truth would come out and you know the bishop would say he did what he did you know and then I'd be exonerated that that kind of truth I didn't right. know the truth would come out that it's all a lie yeah. it, it it's and so um, the women were really good. And I told them, I said, I, I, I don't know what I believe anymore. I, I can't tell you all, all these wonderful encounters that I've had with the divine, what that is, if it's God. Because the God that I was raised to believe is, is not the God who spoke to my mind. He was kind always, or she was kind always, or yeah. what, whatever that power was. Right. was never judging, was never harsh, was never 
never accusatory mm -hmm. or made me feel unworthy or unwanted. Mm -hmm. I said, so right now, I, I have no idea what I believe. And one, one of the dear women there that I was most afraid of to tell this was because she was so spiritual and she was, seemed to me so close to God. And she looked at me and she said, Kim, you have no idea how lucky you are because you have a blank slate and you get to start over and you get to build whatever truth that resonates in your heart, however it looks and feels for you. Mm -hmm. You don't have anybody telling you or controlling you. She said, you really don't know what a good space you're in. Yeah. So and I was like, oh, thank you, Tashi, for saying that, because I thought you were going to hate me for, oh. <laughs> for, not, for saying, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. Right. Um, so that, that weekend was one of those miraculous retreats. And at the end of it, before I had left, I had left instructions with Carl. Sam Young was in town. And we had gone to a few of his things in downtown Salt Lake. And um, he was going to be in town, and he was going to march his flag up to the top of Ensign Peak. And I said, you know, we live close to that. I said, I want you to go, and I want you to meet him. I want you to hike up on the top of Ensign Peak with him. And I want you to get a flag that says protect every child and I want you to tell him who we are and what we do and, you know, that, that we're on board with him and blah, blah, blah. And so he calls me on Sunday afternoon and he says, um, I did what you said. And I met Sam, a nice guy doing good work. Mm -hmm. He said, but I really want to tell you the story of what happened when I was up there. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And he said, I, I talked to this woman who had made it, when she heard what Sam Young was doing, had made a commitment to herself to march up to the top of Ensign Peak every night for 40 nights oh, wow. and hold her flag. Hmm. She was one of his stories that she sent to the first presidency. Hmm. And she said one night when she was up there, there was a young women's group up there and all the leaders and all the young women were up there and she was standing there minding her own business holding her flag and they went over to her and asked her to leave. Mm. And I said, did she leave? He said, yes, Kim, she did. Mm. And I said, it's amazing how deep the shame is that a grown woman who's not doing anything wrong other than holding a flag that says protect every child who, who wouldn't want to be a part of that. Right. And is so shamed in front of all these people that she actually leaves. And all of those girls that are there, however many of them that are being abused, because you know, there are some mm -hmm. know that there's no hope for them. What you were saying about um, <clears throat> uh, the feelings that you were getting, that you were attributing to God, um, whether it was she mm -hmm. or he, mm -hmm. I've been kind of on that same journey. And mm -hmm. um, what I've learned, and this is my own opinion and my own um, understanding, but that we are told to um, deny our own intuition we're told mm -hmm. to deny our own truth. Um, mm -hmm. And any time that there is something that is um, 
that's supposed to be good in our lives that we feel the dopamine rush of the Holy Ghost in air quotes, <laughs> that that is actually us, that that's actually us and that we are actually God. We are our own God. And, and whether or not there is a higher power, um, I don't, I don't know. And I don't actually really care at this point. Right. <laughs> I, what I know is that I trust myself and that I trust my own intuition and that I'm willing to make sure that I never deny that again. Right. And That's right. Yeah. And, and what the church has done with, um, with telling us that we would get from the time we we're little telling mm -hmm. us that we would get a still small voice, that we would have a burning in our bosom, that we would have all these, whatever the, the belief is that we're going to have these feelings of the Holy ghost. But then having us be confused, I'm, I was confused. I was like, well, is this the Holy Ghost or is this Satan? I had that fight right. with myself all the time. Is this the Holy all Ghost or is this Satan? How do I know? And, mm -hmm. and there's no way to know because it's neither. There's no way, well, there's no right answer because it's neither one. It is our own intuition that we're listening to. And when something doesn't feel right, like when we're little kids or when you were 15 and you were being molested, being touched by this missionary, it was, I'm sure you probably felt shameful. You probably felt like this, this isn't right. Something is wrong here. I shouldn't be in this space. And, right. and yet you deny that because you're like, well, this is a missionary. This person mm -hmm. has been called by God to go to this, to come to this mission and to He's be good and mm -hmm. I'm bad. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So they, they create this narrative where you are your own enemy. Mm -hmm. You are, you are not worthy. You are not, um, you are not good enough. You are, um, a sinner. You mm -hmm. have so many things that you need to change in your life and don't, don't be looking at somebody else's problems until you look at your own. So what is the scripture, the moat and the beam, something about the moat yeah. in your eye until you, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, they, they, they discount your ability to have that intuitive knowing, um, and to listen to yourself and, and Kim, you listened to yourself over and over and over again. And the church doesn't praise that the no. church does not um, encourage that the church doesn't want people who are strong and opinionated. Yeah, they're, they're afraid of that. They are afraid of it. They don't want people who are strong and opinionated. So if, because of what happened to you when you were younger, because, um, when you, when you gave up your daughter for adoption, the way that the church handled that, um, I, I kind of wonder if every one of us who has been abused, that it's been reported, um, and you know, that we've given children up for adoption because I, I was sent to church social services too. And I ended up, I ended up keeping my son, but, um, they, they wanted me to put him up for adoption, you know? Um, and my thought is with that, and I'm sorry for rambling, but my thought no, is, my thought is with that is that if I am not a worthy member of the church because of carrying a child and they want to put this or because I was carrying a child out of wedlock, um, that, that they want to put this child with a family who will raise him in a way that makes it so that he's brainwashed enough to stay. So if, if I'm already damaged goods and I'm already kind of going to be grappling with the, this, this, the, this whole thing for the rest of my life, then eventually people like us are going to find our way out. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we've been victimized by somebody in the church and then we've been victimized um, outside when once we leave the church, um, you know, once we try to ask for help, they're, they're have, they have no interest in us being members. They don't have any interest in us being in that ward building because we being strong and, and opinionated um, would be like Moses and we might lead everybody out. <laughs> out, out, yeah. The promised land. That's right. And the promised so land I, is trusting yourself. Right. And and I have those same same beliefs in, in some way um, as you do, because that makes sense to me when I say, you know, I, I, I never heard a voice. I never mm-hmm. felt it. It's the words that came to my head. Right. And I knew they weren't my words. But they were they they they're in my head. Mm-hmm. Those were my words. They came yep. from me. Yep. Right. Right. So so in that regards, it made sense to me. Um, I, but I think that's the higher power in me. I think mm-hmm. there's something that in all of us that is bigger than what we understand. Mm-hmm. I personally think that's love. Yeah. And so when I know it's good, then I I. I know it's it's from love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's male. Love is no gender. It's male and female. It's the yeah. it's the divine feminine and it's the divine masculine. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to put a gender on it because love is love. Mm-hmm. And that's what's in my heart. That what tells my head what is right. Those are the words that come to my head. Come from my heart because it's love Mm -hmm. um so and you know my feeling there is if i find out when i die that there is a god he's gonna love me because that's love if god is love then no matter what i've lived and believed and you know he's gotta love me Mm -hmm. you know otherwise he's not love right and you know, the, the thing about so, what you're saying about love, I also think the same thing about our souls. So our souls have no gender, you know, right. um, no. our souls are, are, um, what's the word I'm looking for are drawn to other people who are, um, who are authentic and can actually, um, see you and love you unconditionally. And I think that the yeah. church actually takes love and makes it into something that it's, that's ugly, you know, yeah. that's conditional yeah. because your, your life is, um, or you're, you are only worthy so long as you are doing all the things that the church is saying. So then therefore you're only worthy of the love of all the people around you if you are conforming and fitting in the box. So yeah. if you're not conforming and fitting in the box anymore, then it, everybody it in the church, sense, does it? right. Everybody in the church will stop loving you. They will, yeah. they will throw you under the bus. They will find a way to discredit you. They will find a way to not hang out with you anymore. The church may even tell people in the ward to avoid you um, because you're speaking out against this conditional love. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, I mean, unconditional love is not found in religion as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely hard to find. I've never, I can't say that I've seen it either or experienced it, but yeah. Um, but after after he told me that story about that woman going up to Ensign Peak, and mm-hmm. I hung up the phone and I took off my garments. 
good for you. And I drove to my friend's house and sat with her all night and told her everything that I had once believed mm. that she didn't know about me. And she's sitting there like horrified. <laughs> <laughs> That's not you. No way. That's not you. That's not, you know, cause all the years that she knew me, I was, I was never active in the church. She, so, and it's not like I could tell people, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is what I believe, but I don't go because this is what happened to me. Right. You know, what, what kind of church is that? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so it never, I, I never could tell people who I was or what I was a part of or what I believed. And so I sit in Jay-Z's home and I tell her and she's just in, in shock, but, but not, you know, she said, gosh, it kind of sounds like, um, what's that? What's that church? A cult? Tom Cruise. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> cult? Tom yeah. Cruise? What's that? Oh, the Scientology. Yeah, she said, it sounds so much like Scientology. And I said, yeah, I said, I don't know much about that, but the brainwashing is complete. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when, when, when it's, when your eyes are opened and you see everything, you're just like, how, how, none of that that I believed makes sense. None of it does. Now I have to figure out how to go home and tell my husband that I've taken off my garments mm-hmm. and, and. And I'm 100% completely out. And, you know, she said, well, you know, he's still going to love you. And I said, I, I know, but I, I think this is going to be harder than, than I think. And I get home and I tell him and he says, I'm not far behind you. Oh. And I, I'm a little relieved. And he was reading No Man Knows My History. Mm-hmm. He had just finished reading Rough Stone Rolling, mm-hmm. yeah. which made him question a few things. Wait a minute. This was, this doesn't match what I I was taught. Uh And I know I came into the church at 19 and didn't get all the primary stuff. And, Mm -hmm. but, you know, so then he, somebody recommended no man knows my history. And he read that. And I was kind of hoping while he was reading it, that he would find out that I was on the wrong path. Mm. And that the Book of Mormon really was true. And I was kind of halfway hoping that, you know. Yeah. And um, he was about halfway through it. And I, I sat down by him. And I said, so tell me what you think. And he said, it's, it's all a crock of shit, Kim. It, mm-hmm. It's all made up. It's all lies. Yep. He, he, was, he, he was one of the worst men alive. Mm-hmm. And he was a predator. And, yeah, he said he, he he was a sexual predator. He he was everything that we stand up against. Mm-hmm. He is, and he said, and you need to find out how to get our names off the church because I can't have my name mm-hmm. associated with an institution that is predatory. Yeah. He calls it he calls it a crime syndicate. Hmm. Well, it is. I mean, I uh, I honestly believe that there is a Mormon mafia that runs runs well, the state of Utah, huh? There always have been. Yeah. Well, there's even at the start, you know, yeah. Joseph Smith had his mafia too. Mm-hmm. You know, the the Danites. Yeah. So it, it's a, yeah, it 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 only makes sense that that that's continued. You know, mm-hmm. so. 
Um, my my problem, my my biggest problem is, um, so we moved to um, North Salt Lake just so we could get to be around. You know, we had missed the grandkids for eighteen months, mm-hmm. and we wanted to be around them for a little while. And then then we were going to head back to Dallas. My retreats there, and our friends are there. Mm-hmm. I really haven't made any friends here. Friends are hard to make here. It's like being in high school again. Everyone has their history since they were kids, mm-hmm. and I I don't. <laughs> so it's been really hard to to break even even with Waka, mm-hmm. and so it's it's just been uh, you know if the if the grandkids weren't here and if I didn't, um, my daughter has two sons too, and I I want to know them. They're older. One graduated from high school two years ago, and the other one's graduating this year. And um, but I still want to know them. I want them to know me. I want them to know who I am. Are they still um, in the church, or all no. the kids are out? No, just just my daughter and the the, the young grandkids. They are still in. Mm-hmm. The your oldest daughter, the daughter you put up for adoption, or he's out. Oh, okay. So just one daughter. Yeah, and and. They, um, six months ago, um, bought a house for us to live in, to rent from them, Mm -hmm. three blocks away from them. So it it was kind of like feeling how she really does love us. Mm -hmm. She wants us around. She doesn't want us to go back. And at the same time, she she has no idea where where we're at, because mm. I I have I have something inside me that says it's not for me to tell them; it's for them to ask. Mm-hmm. Because it it's how I felt with them all their lives. It's they they have to figure this is their life. They have to make their own decisions and figure out what's right for them. Right. And so by me telling them my experience and what happened to us, they they know what happened to us with the bishop and all that lies and all all that that went on. Mm -hmm. And they understand, you know, why we left. They just don't know the rest of the story. And um, they, they don't know how everything is connected to abuse. It is. And, um, and that's, that was how we found out it's not true. It's why we had to leave because that we we can't stand with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, now it's just living here and hoping and praying and whatever I can do to, they're smart. They're a smart couple. Mm -hmm. They're both highly educated, you know. They, they, you know, they've got a lot of things on their shelf. I already know that. Um, so it's just, I, I guess right now, not, not only just to be with the grandkids, um, I want to be with them when that shelf drops, when that shelf breaks. Yeah, because that's hard. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really hard for them if it if it ever happens. He's he's generational. Mm. Yeah, 
he goes back a long ways in the church and and i i know that generational stuff is really hard to overcome it is because you lose everything you know mm -hmm. that's what they tell you good old mm -hmm. brad wilcox says if you leave you lose everything yeah it's a threat it's a threat mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well if, if you are believing if you are a believing mormon you really do lose everything mm -hmm. you know she's lost her family we're, we're not a forever family anymore mm -hmm. right right so but that's what she believes yeah but so that's I, gotta hurt that's gotta right yeah yeah. So um, when she when she was uh, a freshman in in college, I flew out there to help her move from the dorms into, or maybe it was her sophomore year, the dorms into an apartment. And the day after I flew into Boston, nine eleven happened. Mm. The towers fell, and I was so glad I was there with her in Boston when that happened. It was so close to New York, and so. Um, and they shut down Boston for a day because two of the terrorists were staying in a hotel in Boston. And, you know, the, the flight came from Logan Airport. And, you know, they were so connected. I was so glad that I was there with her. Um, Carl was with the boys and, you know, that, that was good. And she, she needed someone. And so I feel that, I feel that same pull now that if or whenever that happens, I I I want to be here. I bet it's I want, closer than you think. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I just want to be that soft place for her to fall again, you know, and yeah. um, and and let her know it's not only okay, it's better. <laughs> yeah, the grass is greener. It actually it's really so, is so much better. It yeah. really is. It's yeah. so much better. It's so much of the negative talk that I've had in my head my whole life mm -hmm. it's gone <laughs> I knew they were lies but now I know they were lies mm -hmm. right. you know yeah. now you know so I was never bad never I was never I was not a bad child mm -hmm. I was not a, a bad teenager I, I was never bad and I my almost my whole life I raised my kids believing I was bad mm. I, I did, and I held them at arm's length because if they got too close, they were going to see mm. themselves that I was bad. So they could be close, but, you know, I did the same thing to my husband for so many years. It was like, because that was just in my DNA, I was bad. So it's yeah. to be free from that, holy cow. Yeah. Well, from my my perspective also, there, it's so conflicted. Everything about the church is conflicted. Like you were saying um, earlier about <clears throat> about how you were feeling even after trying to make it so the Book of Mormon was true. You were hoping your husband was going to say that the Book of Mormon actually is true. You right. know, you're still hoping and clinging on to this idea that maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Uh -huh. but, but really, all of that is wrong and it's not good for us. It's not good for our minds. Right. It's not good for our mental health. Oh. It's not good to be told constantly that we're not worthy. 
but then having this circular reasoning where you go to look for something or go look for answers, there's never really an answer. And you ask a question of somebody and they take it as a threat and it's and they become defensive and they start saying, well, I know the church is true because I have a testimony, because I've felt the Holy Ghost. You know, you can't argue with that because mm-hmm. the person that's saying it is not going to back down. That, that's, that's you can't. You don't have an argument for it. Right, right. And, and the, the brainwashing is so deep. You know, I've, I've been there. I've been, I've been there. I've been there. It's not, you can't defend it. You can't argue against it. Mm-hmm. It's very shaming. When, when somebody tells you that God told them this or that the Holy Ghost told them that this is the truth, it's really shaming to you because if you had the Holy Ghost, if you knew God, you would know the same thing. I have, I've had lots of arguments with women over the years at my retreat about that because, you know, Texas is the Bible Belt and, and they're, they're all believers and they want to drive that home. Mm-hmm. You've got to Jesus. You've right. got to, and I, I, I wouldn't allow it, mm-hmm. but that's a whole different venue that, that doesn't belong here. Right. So don't take it up with them here. Don't walk in this room and sit. Because we had one girl. She was so good. She was so insightful. But she'd walk in the room and say, the Holy Spirit just told me to. No. Do not say that at this retreat. Do not. I I, I don't care if he did tell you to say this. Do not enter. start your sentence with that. Say something like, I'm inspired. I feel inspired. You know, whatever, say, but don't. Just say, like, I feel like I want to tell you. Because I don't even like, insp- you know, yeah. inspired, yeah, but that still puts somebody on the defense. Well, why aren't I inspired to get that? Right. I, I should be, you know, right? Yeah. So just say, you know, I feel like I want to tell you. So she stopped. She stopped helping because I wouldn't, I wouldn't let her talk about God. Well, when somebody says, the Holy Ghost has told me, that creates mm-hmm. this level of authority over you yep. where they're You're saying, there about you. uh-huh. uh, yeah, I, I have been told by the Holy Ghost. I've been touched yep. by the spirit and I have revelation that you don't have that I need to give you. I have something that you need. And it's like, you know what? Yeah. I, it's just so disgusting. It is. It's, it's a level of power authority. That's why it's shaming. That's why it's, mm-hmm. that's, it's, it's not, it's not appropriate. Right. Well, when somebody says that they have a testimony and they start bearing their testimony to you, that is insulting. It's insulting. But it's because this other person doesn't even know how to interact in a way with someone who has That's different right. beliefs than them. So they bear their testimony or they say that the Holy Ghost has told them or they have had many, many spiritual experiences. Well, that's wonderful for you. I'm, I'm really glad you've had spiritual experiences. That doesn't mean that you have authority over me or that what you say because of your spiritual experiences means that I need to do what you say I should do. So one thing on this journey that I've been on that I have learned is I have had... I have received a lot of guidance and inspiration, a lot. Mm-hmm. It's only been directed at me. It's never has ever been for anybody else ever. Right. Not my whole life can I say that I've ever, I've ever had words come into my head that said, you need to tell so-and-so. Never. It's never, ever once happened. Right. Never. Right. It's not how it works. Well, that's, that's the narcissist brain, right? The narcissistic yeah. tendencies. For people right. to um, think yeah. that they have what somebody else needs, and that if that other person doesn't accept what they have, then, then, you know, they're going yeah. to hell. 
Yeah. Um, I was going to tell you one more thing. Okay. I I read. Um, I started reading. You know, books after we left. You know, books you're not allowed to read. Ooh. And but one of the books I read was about Mary Magdalene. Mm. And you know, now the Catholic Church has come out and said that she never was a prostitute. That you know, they they just gave her that. Right. So to discredit the uh, woman, right? What are we? Yeah. We are promiscuous. Yeah. We're promiscuous yeah. and we're unworthy. And it doesn't matter how long we've not been unfaithful right. to our husband or not been, you know, I mean, whatever it is, you know, having sex outside right. of marriage, it doesn't matter how long because you're still chewed gum. So what she, um, in her discoveries of going back to the history of women learned mm -hmm. was before Mary gave birth to Jesus, the word virgin meant a woman unto herself. Oh, yeah. It had nothing to do with hmm. nothing to do with sex. Is that what you said? Because you cut out nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, not, it had nothing to do with sex. Mm -hmm. It it was it it was more like sovereignty, a sovereign woman. It was a woman unto herself, is what a virgin was. Well, the church doesn't want a bunch of virgins. Then they don't want <laughs> they don't want a bunch of women who are sovereign unto themselves and trust themselves and actually listen of to course. themselves. Because if we so start, it's the meaning of that word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A virgin birth, they had to attach sex to it. Right. Right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting. Well, and I think that the church is more afraid of powerful women than they are afraid of powerful men. Oh, of course. <laughs> because when we, when we break out and we no longer feel owned by the church, taking off your garments, you're no longer owned by the church. Right. So once you've left and you know they no longer have any power over you because they we realized that that power that they had over us was only because we gave it to them so once we realize that power is pretend and that they're misusing oh. their power then it's scary for them because mm -hmm. when women are angry women do things that make change we do things to promote change you know um women listen mm-hmm Men have a really hard time listening. Yeah. And and women, not always, but women listen. Well, women listen. Yeah. And you know that the church is against the Equal Rights Amendment, right? Yes. I wonder why. You know? Yeah. I wonder why they lobby against it so fiercely. It's because if women have equal rights in this country, based on the Constitution, then what happens? Right. Gives us more power. Of course, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. It's it's it, that that's such a dichotomy here too because all around town, I don't know if they're posted anymore, but all around town for the longest time were um, billboards and posters and signs on on the first woman to vote in the United States was Sarah Young from Utah, right. And they have that posted all over, yet they are still fighting mm -hmm. the ERA. They're bragging about Utah is the first state to have a women vote. It's like it doesn't matter. Yeah, we may we may vote, but you know it's not. Well, it doesn't give it, us the power, right? Voting back, they were voting the way their husbands told them to vote. Exactly, or the way the church tells them to vote. 
Yeah, right? they, they weren't voting for themselves because they had, you know, maybe some of them were, but mm-hmm. the vast majority were voting and they wanted them to vote because they would vote the way the women, the men or the church wanted them to vote. Right. So right. it has nothing to do with being equal. Right. And that's the other thing that women will say in the church. Well, I don't, I'm not secondary to my husband and I don't feel unequal. Well, equality is not a feeling. Equality yeah. is not a feeling. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's right. That's right. It's not a feeling. Yeah. Well, okay. Did I take up too much time? No, you're amazing. <laughs> I love this conversation. This was so good. This is so good. Awesome. Thank you for taking the time to do this and for being vulnerable and sharing your story. I know each one of the stories, they have little connections here and there. They have um, things that are similar, but each person's story has some impact on somebody else. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. As survivors of sexual assault, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place, where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. Did everything that you thought you should